Welcome to Very Honored Frater BT's Esoterra Nerd Podcast, episode 86, in which I learn a great deal from Kes Fry. In this episode, we discuss Qigong, the five Dayani Buddhas of Vajrayana Buddhism, Yab Yum Pose, Red Tara, and of course, Yeshi Tsogyal, the mother of Tibetan Buddhism. But first... The Secret of the Golden Flower. If you would like to catch up with this segment, the beginning of it is in episode 65, and then the second part in episode 67. So this is the third of the Secret of the Golden Flower segment. Therefore, you only have to make the light circulate. That is the deepest and most wonderful secret. The light is easy to move, but difficult to fix. If it is made to circulate long enough, then it crystallizes itself. That is the natural spirit body. This crystallized spirit is formed beyond the nine heavens. It is the condition of which it is said in the Book of the Seal of the Heart, Silently thou fliest upward in the morning. In carrying out this fundamental principle, you need to seek for no other methods, but must only concentrate your thoughts on it. The book Lang Yen says, By collecting the thoughts one can fly and will be born in heaven. Heaven is not the wide blue sky, but the place where corporeality is begotten in the house of the Creator. If one keeps this up for a long time, there develops quite naturally, in addition to the body, yet another spirit body, the golden flower is the elixir of life. All changes of spiritual consciousness depend upon the heart. There is a secret charm which, although it works very accurately, is yet so fluid that it needs extreme intelligence and clarity and the most complete absorption and tranquility. People without this highest degree of intelligence and understanding do not find the way to apply the charm. People without this utmost capacity for absorption and tranquility cannot keep fast hold of it. This explains the origin of the great way, the Tao of the world. The heavenly heart is the germ of the great way. If you can be absolutely quiet, then the heavenly heart will spontaneously manifest itself. When the feeling stirs and expresses itself in the normal flow, man is created as a primal creature. This creature abides between conception and birth in true space. When the one note of individuation enters into the birth, Human nature and life 
are divided in two. From this time on, if the utmost quietness is not achieved, human nature and life never see each other again. Well, we don't want that, so let's get to that interview, shall we? And well, I was reflecting on why why did I you know give you the wrong mantra? Mm-hmm. And I think that it was it was not done consciously, you know, or intentionally. At the time. Yeah. But I think the reason is that this this particular mantra is not for the general public. Okay. For start for a starter mantra. Right. It's more of a like I had been doing the Vajra Guru mantra for twelve years mm. before I received it. Yeah. And so what I would recommend would be for people that are starting to work with a Vajra Guru mantra and to read the biography of Yeshi Sogol, the enlightenment of Yeshi Sogol first, so that they can establish a conscious sense of her presence, mm. who she was and who she is. And then, after they've been doing some other practices, there'd be a point at which it would be appropriate to introduce them to this mantra. Now, I'll give you the mantra okay. <laughs> privately. Okay. It's it's you know it's very. But if I'm simple. teaching, don't don't give it first. I didn't want to record it though. Oh okay. So if you pause the recording, sure. I'll I'll tell you what it is. So the mantra that's done at the beginning of the practice also has mudras that go with it, and it, it has to do with body, speech, and mind. The throat chakra is speech, of course. And so, uh, it's done like this. It's Om, Ah, Hung. H-U-N-G? H-U-N-G. Om, Ah, Hung. And those are the first three syllables of the Vajra Guru Mantra. The Vajra Guru Mantra is Om, Ah, Hung, Vajra Guru, Padma, Siddhi, Hung. Well, sometimes I make mistakes, and there's a reason for it. Yeah, see? yeah. And, I mean, I'm just into sharing things, you know. Yeah. But <clears throat> I think that my higher self or my guidance affected my memory and caused me to give you the wrong mantric formula. Mm. Because it's not, at this point, to be given out indiscriminately. Right. It was given out in the... The Yeshi Sogol empowerment I went to, Namkadrima, this teacher mm-hmm. here, he, he was the Lama that was doing it. He gave out the Yeshi Sogol mantra to everybody at the same time. When a mantra is a secret mantra, it's given out where the guru whispers it in the left ear of the chela, or the disciple, three times. And only they hear it. And they're not supposed to divulge it to anybody else. Mm. And one of the reasons for that, and you might want to consider this, Mm -hmm. if you receive that mantra, a mantra, and you keep it within your soul, and you keep repeating it, and you do a sadhana with it, a visualization, like, you know, the one that 
goes with the Yeshisogo mantra. Mm -hmm. That creates a lot of power and energy. If you let it out, you lose some of your energy that mm -hmm. you have built up. I've noticed that every time I give give away things. <laughs> yeah, you lose yeah. you lose some of that. Yeah, but it's 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 a an act of compassion, you know, to share it mm. so someone else can benefit. Right. So you might want to just work with it secretly and privately by yourself for a given period of time, and then at some time you might intuitively sense now it's time to share it, you know, yeah. wanting to relate to Yeshi Sogo as a spiritual guide. Yeah. And so forth. But you need to be selective as to who you give it to, because you don't want to waste this. This is something very precious, mm. so you don't want to waste it. And I think that's the reason why it's not to be just given out to right. the general public indiscriminately or anonymously, right. you know, like to be put on a podcast or something, because you don't know who is going to get it. Now, I don't understand if that would do any harm. I can't see how it would. <laughs> That's why I was trying to give it to you. Right. But higher wisdom than me, than Cass, mm. told Cass, no, Cass, don't mm. do this. <laughs> so I listened to that. It's not me. It's something that's guiding me. Yeah. You follow me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's a difference between the man and the teacher. Mm. You may have heard of the Tibetan teacher Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, who was very notorious and, and well-known and had a major influence in bringing Tibetan Buddhism into the West, into this country particularly. And he was known for, for drinking and smoking and, and uh, loose morals, so forth. And there was, a, there was a, an attendant, a personal attendant that he had who, you know, was like his footman. You know, he helped him get dressed. Trunka was paralyzed on one side of his body because hmm. he'd been in a, a drunken car accident in England before he came to the United States. And so he needed help, you know. So this person was with him all the time. And Trunka drank a lot. And this guy, uh, and this was published in the, Tricycle magazine, if you're familiar with that. Hmm. I don't know if it's still out in print, but it's a, Ameri it's a, a magazine of American Buddhism. Hmm. This story was put in there. That's how I heard about it. Nobody you know, told me verbally or anything like that. So it's not a secret right. kind of a thing. But this guy was noticing how drunk and fun-loving... Trumpa was all the time, and he started to lose respect for him and question as to whether or not he was really a legitimate qualified guru, because the guy was just partying and carrying on and all that. And he was up in the room, you know, and he was going to help Trumpa get undressed to go to bed, and Trumpa had been drinking and everything, and Trumpa suddenly just stopped, looked him right in the eyes, and he, and he said to him, you have to distinguish between the man and the teacher. Hmm. You're judging me as the man because of my behavior that you see. Hmm. But I'm still a teacher too. 
So, you know, it's an interesting thing to share. Yeah. Not to judge, in other words. I've... A lot of people condemned Trumpa because he did not live up to their expectations of what a holy person or a guru was supposed to be. Right. He did all the stuff they're not supposed to do. Right. But one of the reasons he did that was because he wanted to let people know that you could still drink and smoke and party or you know, carry on and you can still be spiritual and meditate. It's not a prerequisite hmm. to be pure in terms of the physical stuff. Though, obviously that helps a lot. And a person could be handicapping themselves by drinking and smoking and uh, you know having loose morals and so forth. For most people, that's just going to make you worse. It's not going right. to serve you. Yeah. But he was at a state where it really didn't matter <laughs> because he was beyond that. Hmm. And I saw him, I had you know some private meetings with him when he first came to the country, when he was up in Berkeley, in the Bay Area, where I lived, 1969-1970, where he would be up there teaching, and he'd be drinking a six-pack of beer and chain-smoking Marlboros, and some of the people would just walk out. They'd say, this guy, this is an insult, yeah. because he wasn't, he wasn't meeting their expectations. But his mind was completely clear, hmm. and everything he said made perfect sense. And I was able to see that it didn't matter what he was doing on the on the level of Malkuth, you know. Hmm. He was still coming from that high place. But a lot of people, they couldn't accept that. Yeah. Yeah, there's a similar, uh, the head of the cult that I was in for a long time, people used to say that, you should be able to distinguish between, and they'd say his earthly name, and then, and, you know, his greatly honored frater so-and-so name, that he was the head of the order by, that they're two different people. There's the teacher and the man. And the man has the dishonest business practices and snuck semen into everybody's drink and, you know, <laughs> did all these horrible things. And so what you're saying has a, a ring of sourness to me because of, of the 18 years that I spent under him. But, um... Oh. But I also one of my uh, one of my longtime teachers, uh, Gordon Beam, also very much respected. Um, Sharum Trungpa, am I saying it right? Chogyam. Chogyam. Trungpa. Trungpa. Yeah. And it sounds like I mean he was basically just drinking and smoking. You know he wasn't stealing money or, or being overtly dishonest or no. leading multiple lives. Yeah, he I was mean, having you know multiple sexual yeah. partners. Right. Women who were probably aware of each other. Were enamored of him. Right. Yeah. He was a fairly young man. He was like 30 mm. when I met him. Yeah. And he looked very young, you know, very vital. Yeah. But because of because of the his lifestyle, he died at the age of 45. I wonder you were talking about people who are yogis in India that mm. then are brought into the western world and then have the temptations of all the fame and all the fit. Would do you think that that would apply here or or is it a different sort of thing? Well, it's a hard thing to call. You know? Yeah, I mean, it's a, you don't There's want to no judge There's no way of proving one way or the other. A holy man. Personally, based on my limited personal contacts with him as a teacher and experiences, teaching experiences I had with him in dreams, mm -hmm. I think he was an enlightened being. Yeah. And another, another holy man who was very highly revered named Kalu Rinpoche, who was 
the total opposite in outward behavior mm. of what Chogyam Trungpa was, came to this country. The Dalai Lama referred to Kala Rinpoche as the Milarepa mm. of the 20th century. And you couldn't give a higher compliment than that. Milarepa was a great yogi of Tibet. In fact, here's a picture of him. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> he's, he's got a very interesting story, but we won't go on that side trip. Uh, Kali Rinpoche was an ascetic, supposedly. Well, that has been brought into question, actually. I just remembered since he came to the West. <laughs> but by a woman that was his translator, she wrote a book. Mm. Said that she did have sexual relations with him. But he, he was the model ascetic who went off and meditated, perfected his meditation in case for 12 years, and just a very high being. And he, he was of equal stature to the Karmapa in the Karjupta order. Karmapa was the head of the order. Hmm. And uh, he also could do the black hat ceremony, which the Karmapa did. Hmm. He came to the United States, and I got an empowerment from one of his disciples for doing a general zig practice, and then I, I took refuge with him at a public teaching he gave. And then I went to a smaller gathering. It was a, like at a house, you know, and the place was packed with people. And one of, and this was a, at the uh, Vajradhatu. That's where the name of the Trunka's centers were. He had Vajradhatus all over the country. And there's one here, not very far from this house, you know, the Shambhala is what they call it now. Hmm. Trungpa came out with a book called Shambhala, the Path of the War, Sacred Path of the Warrior. Hmm. And so they adopted that name. This was in the earlier days. So Colin Rinpoche was there, and someone asked him a question that was very critical of Trungpa. He was saying, uh, you know, he was paying his obeisance and his respect to Colin Rinpoche, you know, who's real squeaky clean, outwardly, you know, with all appearances. And he says, well, what about this teacher who, who like Trumpa, who, who drinks and he carries on with women and he smokes and he does all these worldly things? What about him? Shouldn't he be kicked out of the order? And through a translator, because Kala Rinpoche didn't speak any English, Kala Rinpoche, it's often very difficult for sentient beings to understand Buddha activity. <laughs> that was his response to that. And that confirmed my own opinion and my yeah. own feelings. Yeah. But you know, he's a much higher authority than I I am. Yeah. But it's hard to it's hard to call. It's a very subjective kind of a judgment. Yeah. Because we're not there. We're not there. We're, <laughs> yeah. we're human beings. Yeah. And no matter how high somebody is, they can still regress. Right. As long as they're an individual consciousness. Yeah. They can still regress. And they're in a human body. So like Dion Fortune in that book, The Mystical Kabbalah, she says that she only completely trusts capitalistic teachers that are in the not that are not in the physical form. Mm. Because they aren't subject to the limitations of human nature. They don't have those temptations. Yeah. As long as we're human, we can still regress. And it's a self-delusion to think otherwise. Hmm. And many 
fallen gurus and yogis or Western teachers have succumbed to that because, you know, it's very seductive for the ego right. to think that it's perfected and that it's enlightened and it's above everybody else. And especially when you've got people bowing and scraping to you right. and worshiping you. And that is part of the Eastern tradition. It's not really part of the Western tradition. Right. At least it's not supposed to be. Mm. You know, and I think for good reason. Yeah. So anyway, the whole thing of my explanation about I gave the wrong mantra kind of led in <laughs> into this. Um, and if people work with the Vajra Guru Mantra, Yeshi Sogol and Padmasamava are one. So wherever the one is, the other one is. And the Vajra Guru Mantra is well known it's very powerful and it works to different centers and I told you yesterday my idea of the different centers that go with the different syllables and I don't know if that's completely correct hmm. I know that Om Ahum is the head the throat and the heart and the Vajra I thought was a solar plexus but it might be the sacral center right. because that's where the sexual power is and the Vajra is kind of like the ultimate phallic symbol, you know? Yeah. At least if you're male. Right. But the, the Vajra, and of course there's like Vajra Yogini, who is a great uh, a deity in Tibetan Buddhism. So and she, she carries the Vajra. Yeah, and Yeshi is a master of the Vajra as well. So it's not simply masculine or right. male thing for men, but I think it may be the sacral thing. Vajra, and then the Guru could be the solar plexus and then the Padma that's the lotus, that has to be the heart center mm -hmm. Vajra Guru Padma city, the cities are the powers that's the throat chakra again and then Hung, it's back into the throat into the heart mm -hmm. because Oma Hung and Hung is a harmonizing syllable it integrates things in uh, the one that my dad did, Hung was for the throat and in the Lotus Born, there's one point when Padmasambhava is on his journey, and one of the people he meets takes him into her throat, and uh, it gives him an empowerment with the word hung. So I mm. thought that was inter interesting also. Well, and there's like a mantra, Om Hung, but Om Ah Hung, when you do that, it represents body, and your body is the entire universe. Speech... And that's the word of truth, you know, the Dharma. Mm -hmm. And Hung is the mind, the consciousness. Hung, mm -hmm. That's often done at the beginning of a practice. And so I, I gave you Om Ah. You could right. you could do, do, well relate to Yeshi Solo using that syllable. Yeah, but it's not the same mantra that was given by Namkadriman at the empowerment. Right. So. We're clear on that, and you, when you get to know someone, yeah. and if you feel that they're engaging with the SC and they're sincere, and, and you know your own inner guidance will tell you if it would be appropriate. Yeah. Because if you give that out, you're giving part of your energy out, which is what I did in giving it to you. But if it be, it's going to bear good fruit, there's mm. plenty of reason to do it. Yeah. 
But if it's somebody you don't know, you don't know what it's going to do. Right. Now, again, I'm, this is my interpretation of why yeah. I did that. So. Yeah, I, I, you know, just referencing back the, um, you know, I came from a very secretive group, and they had all kinds of reasons why this is so secret, and this is even more secret, and this is the most <clears throat> secret thing of all, and if you should ever reveal this, well, then, you know, maybe, good luck, you know. And, and so with the Esoteric Nerd podcast, I'm completely... Flipping all of that upside down. Sticking your middle finger up. Basically. That's what Aleister Crowley did. He That's broke his vows, but if he hadn't, the unfortunate wouldn't have been able to write the mystical Kabbalah. Exactly, yeah. She points that out. There were places where she completely disagreed with him, but, but he made public stuff that she wouldn't have dared to. Yeah. Since it was already public, she was cool with it. Yeah. And really the only thing that... Um, I mean, that isn't written in books are, you know, the, the teachings that were developed and the specific nuances of the teachings that were developed in the group I was with, as well as the experiences and the, uh, the first-hand accounts of what it was like and what it was like going through this and that. Because um, because Crowley published everything already. But, yeah. So, in a way, we, we owe him a debt of gratitude. We do. And he, as we were just talking about people. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) We could judge him as a man, but as a teacher, yeah. (laughs) Well, even as a teacher, he changed some things. But no, I, I have respect for Crowley. But I'm glad that Paul Foster Case and a few other people, regardly, regardy too, were there to, you know, say, okay, well, that's great, Crowley, but let's also include, you know, the original teachings before you got to them. (laughs) You know, Uh, but yeah, having both is well in in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. There's this thing that's called the Nundro practice. Hmm. Have you ever heard of that? Hmm. Well, the Nundro practice is a purification thing. It works with a bodhisattva named Vajra Sattva. Hmm. And this is big time Vajra. Vajra Sattva. And there's a, like a 108 syllable mantra for Vajra Sattva. And then there's shorter mantras for hmm. Vajra Sattva, fortunately. <clears throat> I've never practice the 108 syllable one. If you do the Nundro, there are different schools, you know, presented in different ways, but it's it's basically a thing that takes generally about three years to do, and you have to give it two or three hours a day. So this is a pretty serious practice. It involves doing 108,000 repetitions of that mantra, 108 thousand full body prostrations and visualizations and repeating this this whole liturgy to yourself. Mm. For some of the most secret practices within Tibetan Buddhism, you will not be given that empowerment until you've completed the Nundro. Mm. So they they keep that really locked and sealed. Very interesting. For whatever reasons. Yeah. And the point is, it's supposed to purify you and whatever your karma is. It purifies your karma, and then you're capable of receiving the full benefits of that empowerment and that practice. Hmm. So it sort of guarantees that your karma is ripe for it. Yeah. I've never undertaken that, because I got involved with centering prayer and other things. I mean, at one point in my life, I was considering becoming a Lama myself, you know, because I, I really uh, loved this tradition, Lama Govinda, and so forth. And then I thought, well, maybe, maybe in my next life, 
I gave a $500 donation to the building of the Odeon community up in Northern California that Tarthong Tukul established. And this is a huge thing. I mean, they have a whole Tibetan community there. Hmm. And they have everything going on there, you know. And it's kind of secret and self-contained. They don't advertise it very much. You could find out about it if you wanted to visit it, you know, through the Nyingma Center in Berkeley, which the Dharma Publishing is connected to. I thought, well, maybe in my next birth, let me be incarnated, I'll be born in the Odeon community, and then I'll grow up and I'll... Yeah. I'll do that then, you know. That's kind of... I've, been, I've thought about that, too, as far as become, <laughs> becoming vegan and becoming a yogi in the second half of this life. Then maybe mm-hmm. I'll be born into a family of vegan yogis ne- next life instead but, of cheeseburger eating. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> well, now, I mean, from where I'm at now, I... I Whatever is right for my fur- further spiritual right. evolution. Yeah, that's for the higher self, not the lower that's self. That's the higher self call the shot. Yeah. Not Kessie here. Yeah. <laughs> but it was it was kind of a nice thought, you know, at the yeah. time. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I didn't feel quite ready to make the commitment. Yeah. And also, around that time, or shortly after that, I met this Swami Amar Jyoti from India, and I became his student. And I was with him for 12 years and mm. lived uh, in his ashram in the Rocky Mountains as a hermit for two years. And he allowed me to continue my Tibetan practices. He approved of that, totally. Yeah. He was a very universal teacher, though he had a very much a Hindu, you know, cultural background. But he was open to the obvious fact that you can walk on the spiritual journey through any particular tradition or you don't have to have a tradition. You can right. start out as an atheist, seeking the truth, and there are ways that you will, that you can he can guide you to it. That was what he was saying. Mm. It doesn't matter. He'll take you whatever wherever you're at, as long as that's what you want is yeah. to grow spiritually. Yeah. And he was very impressive, but he also turned out to have some flaws. Mm. Uh, <clears throat> another controversy. <laughs> <laughs> So, what I'd like to do, I wrote down a few notes here. So I'm going to share with you some other practices that are related to Tara, mm-hmm. and through Tara to Yeshi Soto. And then we'll do some of this. Okay. <clears throat> um, well, again, the book is called The Enlightenment of Yeshi Sogo. I might have said it was the life and enlightenment of her, but it's called the Enlightenment of Yeshiem Sogo by Tarthong Tuku translator, Dharma Publishing. And I'm going to give you this piece. Oh, of good. Paper. Thank you. So this all you'll have this all written down. And the Nyingma Center in Berkeley was the place he first established. And then I mentioned about the Vajra Guru mantra, Onahum. Vajraguru Padma City Hung, and this is what I'm thinking now about it. And there are what they're called Om Han Hung or seed syllables. Now, there's what's called the five Buddha families, the five wisdoms, the five Dayani Buddhas. Each one of these has a seed syllable. So out of that seed syllable comes the entire lineage of what's in that particular. Buddha family. Hmm. And also the according to the the mythology or the history 
of uh, Buddhism, Vajrayana Buddhism anyway, there there's supposed to be five Buddha incarnations in a particular cycle, or whatever, big cycle, which involves before yugas, you know, the the Golden Age, the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, and the Iron Age. And we're supposed to be in the Iron Age now, which is an age of spiritual darkness, where there are more obstacles to pursuing enlightenment. There's more distractions. And I, I think if we look at the world, that's validated. Cause yeah. There's just, in my lifetime, I've seen the amount of distractions that are there for young people multiplied. Right. By several powers. Well, with the phones everybody looks at first thing in the morning and last thing before they go to sleep now, it's yeah. crazy. Yeah. So there's there's more obstacles and there's in this yuga. Well the first Buddha is called Raja. Dara, I think. <laughs> Again, I might be spacing out here. I'll correct myself if I'm wrong, but there's a mandala. So the center of the mandala is white, and the syllable is Om. That book I gave you by Lama Govinda called The Foundations of Tibetan Mysticism, you might not know where it is. I haven't, right now, yeah. That has all of this in detail. You know? mm. Because this is what I had to study to learn the puja ritual that I do. Yeah. And before I could even start studying that, I had to study the earlier teachings of Buddhism. The Lama Govinda school integrates all the schools. So you start out with the Theravadan teachings uh, of Sakyamuni Buddha, the Four Noble Truths, the Noble Eightfold Path, in the basic meditation, and then you get into the Mahayana school, which is the path of compassion. The first school, you're just working for your own liberation. When you go into the Mahayana, you're not just working for your own liberation, but you make the commitment to work for the liberation of all sentient beings. So that's the path of compassion. But the first one's a prerequisite, because a drowning person can't save a drowning person. Right. So until you're liberated, you're not in much of a position to help others. But to whatever degree, you know, we've made progress. We can help people, but we're still struggling ourselves. Right. And then the third thing is the Vajrayana, which is simply a system of spiritual practices to expedite our growth. And there's a whole bunch of them. You know, there's the mantrayana, the, uh, which is sound, and the visualizations, the imagery, working with the chakras, working with the breath, and the deity worship, and you know, there's just all kinds of stuff there. So there's a whole system that comes out of each one of these seed syllables. Varokana is the, the correct name. Yeah. Varokana is the correct name of the Buddha, it's in the center of the mandala. It goes with the syllable Om, and that's the path of universality, of oneness. <clears throat> Some schools switch 
the center between Varokana and the next one, which is called Aksobia. And that's right underneath. It's the east, but it's right underneath the center. The color is blue. And this is the called the mirror-like wisdom that re- impartially reflects the nature of reality. And it's also referred to as shunyata, or the wisdom of emptiness. And there's this famous line from the Prajnaparamita where it says, form is emptiness, and emptiness is form. So it has to do with realizing the insubstantiality of all created phenomena. And physics has now proven that. You know, even though like I can pound on the arm of this chair or on my face or anything else, and physically, it really is pretty convincing that this is solid because it gives resistance. But on the quantum level, it really isn't solid. What it is is there's these little tiny force fields which are pushing against each other that create the appearance of solidity, but there's more space and emptiness in those than there is actual substance. Mm. But that's so small, you know, we can't begin to perceive it. But the enlightened consciousness does. So it's sort of like being able to really see through things, you might say. So the mirror-like wisdom, and that's that's the first, the first goal, the wisdom of Aksobhya, and his mudra, I, I forgot to tell you, the mudra of Varakona is called the, Muru, the mudra of setting in motion the wheel of the law. This was the mudra that Sakyamuni Buddha made when he began his teaching, and it's like this. Hmm. Setting in motion the wheel of the law. It's done in front of the heart center, and you, know, you, do, you do these two fingers, and you just you join them like that. Yeah. So it's Om, and then the the mantra for Aksobia is Ah, and that's the earth-touching mudra. When the Buddha, you have to pretend I'm in a full lotus. <laughs> he put his hand face with a palm facing inward on the knee, and touching the earth. And when Mara, who was the evil one challenged his enlightenment he did that mudra to call the earth up to witness through all his past lives to the present lives to the truth of his enlightenment so that's that's the mudra of Aksobhya mm. so a person that completely masters that wisdom is liberated from the real the birth I wanted to mention as an aside um, when Kukai had learned the um, Vajrayana Buddhist Buddhism in China and returned to Japan and began Shingon Buddhism, they asked him um, about the old ways of, Ch- of Japan. And they said, uh, where do you stand on the, uh, the Shinto spirits? And he said, Amaterasu, the goddess of the sun, who is the goddess of the universe, is a manifestation of Vajrayana. And in doing, in that one statement, he allowed for Shinto to be mm. part of the whole symphony of, of uh, Vajrayana Buddhism in mm-hmm. Shingon Buddhism. So 
So that, that's very special to me, that Mount Khoisan. That's part of the genius of both Buddhism and Christianity. Whatever culture these religions go into, they can assimilate the mythologies and the deities and the traditions of what's already there into their structure. Yeah. That's the only reason they became world religions. Mm. Because that's what the psyche of the people is ingrained with. Right. And it's already familiar to them. So rather than telling them, well, you got to throw Do all a that completely in the different thing now, yeah. And you have to adopt our cultural thing. Right. You're integrating it. Mm. And that, yeah, that's part of the. Lama Govinda wrote this. Yeah. That's part of the genius of Buddhism and also of Christianity, why they became world religions. Uh, a religion that can't do that is just going to stay, you know, like Hinduism, primarily in one place. Right. It's hard to turn Americans into East Indians. Yeah. For example. Yeah. Most of them don't want to become Tibetans. Or yeah. Some try. But. <laughs> so. We've got the first two wisdoms, the first of the Omni Buddhas, Varakana and Aksobhyas. Om, white, and Ah, blue. And that's the mirror-like wisdom, which sees things the way they are. It's very objective. The third wisdom is very subjective. It's the opposite. It's complementary, in other words. The mudra is the opposite. It's, it's the same thing, but the palm is facing outward. And this is called the gesture of giving. Of giving. The name of the, the Dhyani Buddha is Ratna Samhava. And Ratna means jewel. So this is the, the precious jewel. The color is yellow, gold, gold. And the energy is the energy of love and compassion. Ratnasamava. So that's it's called the equalizing wisdom mm. in terms of this universal oneness. All sentient beings are equal in their Buddha nature. And the, the love, love is more to me of a more of a Christian term, but the love or the compassion is what makes us all equal. Right. In love, there's no place for domination in love. Love is a self-giving of communion, interchange, and union. And it, trend, it transcends all of the games you know, that the ego plays. Yeah. It's on a much higher spiritual plane, and it transcends good and evil completely. Hmm. That's where Yeshi Sogo was coming from when you know, she was attacked. Or Jesus was when he was crucified. Yeah. So, this, these, these are represent three Buddhas that have already appeared on Earth, supposedly. Now the the next wisdom, the fourth wisdom. This was the wisdom of discrimination, the discriminating wisdom. It, these wisdoms build on each other, so you 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 start. In this system, with the universal wisdom of Arakana, then you go to the mirror-like wisdom of Aksobhya, which is very objective and sort of impartial, impersonal. 
Then you come to this, the wisdom of what I would call the wisdom of love, or the wisdom of equality of Ratnasamhava, which is the energy of compassion and love. And then that evolves further into the discriminating wisdom of Amitabha. Amitabha is the Buddha of infinite light. Mm. I would compare that to the limitless light. Ein Safor, literally. Ein Safor of the Kambhala, yeah. And the unfortunate refers to the Ein Safor as the three veils of negative existence. Mm -hmm. There's Ein, which is there is no, and Ein Sof, which is there is no limit, and then Ein Safor, which is there is no limit to the light. Oh, thank you. I, yeah. didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah. In modern Hebrew, mm. um, ayin is used to mean there is no. Like, so it's commonly used. Like, uh, do we have everything we need? There's no bread. Ayin bohem. And then uh, ayin sof, sofit. When they say mem sofit, it's the one that is closed and has a value of 600 instead of the one that's open and has a value of 40. Because mm. it's at the end of the word. It's at the finishing of the word. So ayin, there is no, end, um, and then or. But like it's aura the, comes from that. Maybe. Yeah, different, light. but yeah, light or yeah, mm. and then Oriel, light of God, and then I don't it aura may I didn't know it had a Hebrew origin, but yeah, they're probably related for sure. They might be. Yeah. So yeah, the Amitabha is the Buddha of infinite light, mm -hmm. and our this is the Buddha of our eon or our period. Shakyamuni Buddha was a physical embodiment of Amitabha. And also, Padmasambhava is an embodiment of Amitabha. Hmm. So this this is the Buddha family that we're primar primarily working from. The color is red. And the thing about the discriminating wisdom is that it is able to perceive both the universal relations of everything, but also all of the individual aspects and individual karmic connections of everything. So it, it discriminates, it, it nuances perfectly and completely everything. Like if someone with that consciousness looks at a particular soul, they would read that soul's karma and see all their past lives and everything going on with them and know all about why they are the way they are and what they need and what they don't need. You know, it's a very divine kind of a perspective. Yeah, and so that's the that's it's out of the energy of Amitabha that Avalokiteshvara or Chandrasekhar was born, the archetypal Bodhisattva. It's out of Amitabha that Tara came through Chandrasekhar, out of his tears of compassion, and out of that that Jeshi Sogo came. So this is our Buddha family if we're relating. To Yeshi Sogo, and we're relating to Tara. We still are connected to the other ones, but this is the primary one. Right. And like Lama Govinda, he practiced something that was called the Dim Chog Tantra. That's what he was initiated into. And that is known as the Tantra of Great Bliss. And that also comes from Amitabha. Because it's not only infinite light, but it's infinite happiness infinite bliss, infinite fulfillment. Mm. So when a person grows into this, 
they grow into a state which I was told by one of my spiritual guides years ago that <clears throat> you shall become whole and complete in yourself alone. So just in yourself, by yourself, you will be whole and complete. And that is the state from which you can relate to others with compassion. Like Chogyan Trumpa once said, the only reason to relate to others is out of compassion. Because when you grow into the wholeness and completeness that is your true self, your Buddha nature or your true nature, you don't need anything from anybody outside of you. Because you are whole and complete in yourself, you have everything that you could want and more already. So you're not needy. Yeah. In any way, I mean, you're going to, as a human being, you're going to have physical needs, of course, but you're not going to have emotional needs, social needs, or any of that. You transcend that. Ultimately, you will. Mm. But it, that's, that's a state that we're aiming towards. It's not where we are now. Right. I would say that that would be the state that a person who has grown into a full adept of Tipperth would be in. Hmm. Where all of their centers are on the big tree of tree of life. They're in the sphere of Tipperth beauty. They've transcended human nature and they don't need to reincarnate in the human body to learn any more lessons or to work out any more karma because they've completed the course. Yeah. They could choose to incarnate or be asked to, but only out of compassion to serve the divine plan. That'd be the only reason for it. Of course, if they did, then they would still have to go through the whole process of being learning. Born and as a helpless infant and right. being subject to the wounding and everything that happens to us. And maybe even regress. Yeah, there's a danger. Mm. There would, because they would have to remember who they are at some point. And that might give them a huge ego trip. And, yeah, there would, they would have to go through the temptations and that every human being has to go through, even Jesus. Yeah. He had to be led out into the desert to go through the temptations. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that. So it's not... It's not necessarily a rosy thing to do, right? <laughs> but out of love and compassion, or and it may further our spiritual growth to do this. I, I don't know, but certainly it's going to create positive karma if we use it right. But we could regress and we could screw up, yeah, make mistakes, and succumb to the ego, to the false self. Mm. There's the because we have to overcome it again. Yeah. If we take on human life, it comes with the territory. There's no getting around that. Right. So that's why some people will say, well, become the adept and then make this your last incarnation. You don't have to mess with this anymore. Hmm. Well, anyway, that's something that's, to think that's about. That's one of the earlier Buddhas, though, right? Not, that is the, uh, the one who reincarnates until everybody's enlightened. Is that the fifth? That's the Bodhisattva. 
but the uh, the not the mirror mind or the the mirror like wisdom frees us from the wheel of rebirth if we perfect it. Oh, okay. So once you've once you've gotten all of those five, then you can be a a llama, or then you can be a ring ring a bodhisattva. Well, full bodhisattva. I mean, you would be a Buddha once you perfected. The oh, okay. Five. I see. So it's there's many different degrees, you know, in each of these things. Yeah. But you want to start at the beginning. You were saying our main spiritual, our main Buddha family that we're looking at is that fifth one, but we want to start with the first one. It's the fourth one. The fourth one. It's the one of Amitabha, the Buddha of infinite light. The four wisdoms. It's the discriminating. The fifth wisdom is of Moga City, is the name of the Buddha. The color is green. See, it's... Let me show you the, the mudras, and I'll say the the seed syllables. It's Om, Hung, Trang, Hari, and this is the gesture of meditation. Hmm. And the last one is Ah. And that's the that's one that, that he's one. that's the one that he's doing. Ah. Back to the throat chakra, and this. This is called the all-accomplishing wisdom. So once someone has evolved through all of those prior four, then they have Buddha activity. That's the all-accomplishing wisdom. So that's karma-free action. It's the the all-accomplishing wisdom. In other words, you can get the job done. You can, and I would say Christ would be an example of the ultimate bodhisattva. In the West, yeah, and there is reason for me anyway to uh, connect that because Amoga City is supposed to be Maitreya, the next Buddha, the, which is the Buddha that brings the teaching of love to humanity, mm. and the name Maitreya means he whose name is kindness, and he's supposed to be born in the West, and the Buddha. As recorded of having said that in 500 years the next Buddha will appear in the West. Hmm. But a lot of the Buddhists added another zero under that 500. <laughs> hmm. 5,000 just yeah. to make it longer. But to me, I think that Jesus Christ was oh. the Buddha that was born in the West. Yeah. Now, Buddhists are not going to like that. <laughs> you know, I could be wrong. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But as a person that's integrating mystical Christianity and Tibetan Buddhism, right, that's right. a good fit. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. And another another good fit for me that I discovered is this: uh, the three principal mysteries in Christianity that go with the three major feasts. Christmas Epiphany is the feast of divine light. That's Amitabha. Easter is the feast of divine love. Mm. That's Amatthias. That's this is the three here. This is Amatthias, the Buddha of infinite life. These are emanations of Amitabha. This is Amitabha. Then his two primary emanations are Amatthias and Chenrezig or Avalokiteshvara. This is the Buddha of love and compassion. And 
So the three mysteries of Christianity are the mystery of divine light, divine life, Easter, divine love, epiphany. The three major deities in this school of Tibetan Buddhism are Amitabha, the Buddha of infinite light, same thing as Christmas Epiphany, mm. Amitayas, the Buddha of infinite life, same thing as Easter. Yeshi Sogol resurrected dead people. Mm. She was able to resurrect the dead, just like Jesus did. That's what they recorded. And Chenrezig slash Avalokiteshvara, that's his Sanskrit name, he's the manifestation of divine love and compassion. Divine love is the feast of Pentecost, mm. the birth of the church, and the main teaching that Jesus brought that was new was the teaching of love and mercy and forgiveness. So I connect the three that way. It's a perfect fit for mm. me. Yeah. Between them. They arose in completely different cultural contexts because Jesus was a Jew and a Kabbalist and he came out of that tradition, which the tradition of the prophets and you know what we know of the Old Testament and where the Kabbalah that we know now came from. And the Buddha came out of the Hindu, what we call the Hindu tradition of India. But there's a definite parallelism between them. Would you say that um, Padmasambhava came out of the tradition of Buddhism? Yeah. So Nepal, he was he, he was in Nepal, right, at the time? Yeah, the lake that he supposedly was manifested out of a lotus thing in the middle of a lake was in Nepal. I have to go find that lake if it's still there. <laughs> I don't remember the name of it, but it's... I'm sure someone will tell me. It'll be, it should be in your book, <laughs> yeah. The Lotus Barn. Uh, so, anyway, that's a parallelism between yeah. these two major world religions. They are, com they are compatible, uh, at least esoterically. They're not going to be compatible for... On the exterior level. Okay, on the exoteric level, or yeah. for people that are fundamentalists, or who believe in the exclusivity of one as being the only Truth. thing that's right, and the other one as being something less. Yeah. But on the deeper level, they're all pointing us towards something that transcends our ideas. Yeah. And our images and words and symbols. I remember uh, when we were at Mount Koyasan, where Shingon Buddhism is, uh, has its heart. Um, uh, right outside of the sacred area, there's a, a tea house. And we went there, and uh, I overheard two, I think, Japanese businessmen talking, but they were speaking English. And uh, one of them was saying, you know that they they had a friend who came here and was very dev devout and got you know seemed to be getting a lot out of this and I said aren't you a Christian and he said yes and I said well if you're a Christian then go be a Christian what are you doing here this is for Buddhists and I was I, I wasn't going to interrupt someone else's conversation but it was kind of disheartening to hear like that so firmly like just as a matter of fact you know like if you're a Christian be a Christian this is for Buddhists you know it's like yeah. I don't feel that well, way at all. I, I wasn't yeah. raised that way. From the day I was born, I was a Christian Buddhist. So, I mean, what he's talking yeah. about is not... 
compatible with my DNA, <laughs> you know? Well, a lot, of, a lot of Buddhists have heard Christians put down Buddhists. Right. And so they assume that that's... That it's a competition. The perspective of all Christians. Yeah, yeah. And it's too bad. Yeah. It's too bad. But yeah. that's, that's something that needs to be overcome. And only real education can accomplish that. Yeah. To realize that there, there is an esoteric aspect of both these traditions and that they are not mutually exclusive on the deeper level. Yeah. On the exoteric level, they're, they're completely different. But I got to a place where in, in the inner mysteries of at least the school I was in, the Golden Dawn School, um, there was a, a point on you wear this lawman and there's a little tiny white dot in the middle and that that was where you would locate yourself, your true self, and that that later I was reading that the um, the little I believe it's red. There's a little red dot or a little red droplet that sits on top of the solar plexus in Tibetan Buddhism that is supposed to be the actual immortal soul. That when we die, it goes out through the crown, and when it takes birth in someone else, it comes through the crown and takes its place on top of the solar plexus. Mm. And I always connected that with the pink light that I would emanate, uh, the, the compassionate mm. healing light, and that it was neither west nor east, it was both, it was neither, it was truth. It was just uh, expressing itself in two different worlds. Well, the, ex the experiences that I've had that have been my major ex spiritual experiences, they have been free of anything that would tie them to a particular tradition. Mm. They've been experiences of energy and consciousness and, and a sense of the sacred and divine love, but there was yeah. nothing labeling them as right. East or West or, or Christian or, or anything else. Yeah, it's like that's all for the sake of communication amongst each other and community, the, the forms of the religion. Yeah, and for our introductory purposes, we need images and we need names and forms and and all that. Yeah. But the problem is we get people get stuck yeah. in those things and they they identify the symbol with what the symbol represents. Right. And they they never get to what it represents. They they get too fixated <sighs> on the symbol. That makes sense. And that's the exoteric. Yeah. Thing, you know, and so for some people that's enough for them, because they're not that interested in a deeper spirituality. They're interested in living the drama of their human life as a personality and pursuing their desires that they have and so forth. Yeah. And they compartmentalize the different areas of their life in separate compartments. But if a person is wanting to live spiritually, you don't compartmentalize your spirituality. It has to be brought into everything we do, every relationship, every activity. It's part of everything. Yeah. That makes sense. And it takes work, you know, to do that. Yeah. It does. Well, anyway, so these, this is something that you could do as a practice. You could start by saying, home, Ahong, which is for the blessing and the purification of body, om, speech, and the throat, ah, 
hung in your mind, in the heart. Then you could do the mudras for the five Dayani Buddhas, where you'd go Om, Hung, Trang, Ri, Ah. Does it matter right hand on top or left hand on top? In the Tibetan tradition, it's right hand in the left. Okay. The left is considered feminine, it's the container. And the Chinese also do right and left. The Japanese do left and right. In mm. Zen, they do left and right. Whatever feels right to you, yeah. what you should do. I, I do think it's just the way Dogen remembered it when he went back to Japan. <laughs> I do. Yeah. yeah. Maybe or maybe in that particular Soto temple he was in. Yeah. He might have had a little dyslexia or something. <laughs> well, now they, they uh, recommend, you know, because he also said put your left foot on your on your uh, or put your right foot on your left thigh and then put your left foot on your right thigh and of course that would make you kind of asymmetrical over time so nowadays zen, zen buddhists um, alternate and uh, you know adhere to such a strict letter of the law of the 1200s <laughs> yeah so it's yeah it's the the left is considered feminine and the right is considered masculine okay and i know in, in qigong uh, if you there's a difference between if you're a man or a woman. Qigong is a Taoist thing, you know, it's related to Tai Chi. And uh, I have a friend that's involved in teaching centering prayer who's a sort of like a Tai Chi master. She's from Mexico. And she does these energy uh, exercises at our silent retreats to help people ground the energy that builds up from being in silence in community and doing four to five hours of centering prayer every day hmm. and if you're a man you with the right hand you you connect the thumb and the pointing finger and then with the left hand you connect the middle finger with the thumb and you you sit with your back straight and then you curl your tongue up to the roof of your mouth well, you only do this when you're in a place where you are willing to absorb the energy that's in the environment. Mm. So like, you know, you wouldn't do this in an airport or in some public place because it opens you to take in energy. But, okay, so if you're a man, you do that. If you're a woman, you do the opposite. If you're a woman... Index finger on the left hand. On the left hand, it's thumb and index finger and it's middle finger and thumb. Interesting. That's in Qigong. Hmm. I curl the tongue. The reason for curling the tongue is that there's there's like an energy circuit that goes up to your spine in the back and it goes through the head and it goes down in the front. But the energy won't go down unless you connect connect it. When you put your tongue into the roof of your mouth, that connects the circuit to allow the energy to go down. If too much energy builds up in your head without going down, you're going to get a headache. Mm. We were doing third eye work, and Lindsay got a headache, so maybe I'll suggest the curling the tongue. Oh, it yeah. does wonders. Yeah, I mean, you can actually feel the energy going down your tongue. Yeah, it goes down in the, and you can visualize it coming up in the front and going down in the back. Mm. Completes a circuit. Yeah, and then that's called the the water wheel or the mill wheel. You know, in the Taoist tradition, the tradition of the secret of the golden flower text, hmm. which is another 
very for me a very important transmission text that I received when I was uh, 20, 21, I think I was 21 years old. Mm -hmm. I actually received the teachings of it to, to dream. I remember I, uh, I, I we recorded it, yeah, the story. I've been doing uh, one of, I've been reciting from that book with portions at the beginning of my podcast sometimes. Oh, from that autobiographical writing? From the Golden Flower. Oh, from the Secret of Golden Flower. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have the version by Richard Wilhelm? I believe so. With I, Carl Jung's forward yeah, in it? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the one that I first got. Okay. I think you actually might have given it to my dad, because it's an old book. I didn't buy it. So, I mean, someone oh. else bought it and left it in my library. Oh, <laughs> hardback? No, it's a paperback. Yeah, I don't know. But I, I noticed, because I had a fire in August of 1998, so some of my books have, you know, fire damage. And so it's one of those books. And so I was like, okay, this must be a book I inherited, you know. Yeah, that, that book is very nice. And it's a combination of Buddhist teachings and Taoist teachings. Mm -hmm. Lama Govinda was asked about the book, and he said that it had Tibetan influences in it. Very cool. As well as Taoist. Lama Govinda wrote a book on the I Ching, so he was very much into Taoism as well as Buddhism. And those are, of course, two non-theistic religions yeah. where you don't worship a god that's outside of you. One thing that's very popular for white people to write about in yoga magazines is um, that other white people shouldn't mix Indian and Chinese things, that that's ignorant and stupid. So it's it's really good to hear these things, you know, and, and to hear that Taoism and... Uh, Buddhism and Hinduism and and uh, Tibetan and, and Indian can well, they can all complement and go yes. together. Well, you know, I would compare that type of thinking to the same kind of thinking that discriminates against uh, you're either a Buddhist or you're a Christian. Right. Exactly. It's it's, it's dividing things, and it's it's exoteric thinking. Yeah. It's not esoteric thinking at all. Yeah. So Bodhidharma. He was an East Indian, so he came out of the Indian culture. He was enlightened. He's considered the, the founder of Zen Buddhism. Mm -hmm. He went to China. He lived in China and uh, introduced his teaching to Chinese people, and they called it Chan Buddhism. And then at some point, it went from China to Japan. So it went... That was Dogen. <laughs> Dogen, yes. Yeah. Dogen Zenji, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Ehiye Dogen, yeah. So it it embraced, you know, all three of those very different cultures. Mm. Yeah. Padmasamhava is another example because, as I mentioned yesterday, it said he went like a honeybee from one flower center of teaching to another, gathering all the wisdom that was available. Yeah. Integrating it before he went to Tibet. He was invited by the king because they were having a hell of a time trying to establish Buddhism there because the teachers that were coming weren't equipped to deal with the opposition they were getting from the Bon Po who wanted to remain, you know, the rulers, <laughs> uh, spiritual rulers. So that's another example of integrating. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was... Uh, um Someone the the article started out talking about how they went to a, a yoga class and then the yoga teacher 
started reciting something from a sutra and they were like what you ignoramus don't you realize that yoga is and then of course yeshi is a yogini <laughs> so i mean that kind of shuts people up you know she's like, a supreme yogini. yeah she's a very great yogini and she's a scholar and she's a powerful woman and she wields like you said the phallic energy the ultimate phallic energy and so i mean i think that she's a very powerful person to to connect with for for people who are opening up to other paths or other ways, or people who have found their way into yoga and kind of uh, new age spirituality, you know, just a little to kind of give them like, okay, here's a light, you know, like here's a little more like a guiding light towards something. She's one of the female Buddhas. Yeah. So she's the same as any other Buddha. Yeah. It's that, you know, at a certain point, the whole thing of gender is completely transcended. Right. Well, there's a, a white Tara mantra. You may know this mantra. It's pretty well known. But this would be like the mantra for Yeshidawa, mm. or white Tara, wisdom moon. And this mantra can be freely given to people. Mm -hmm. And I use it a lot. I've used it for a long time. And the mantra is... Om Tari Tutari Turi Svaha. The Tibetans, instead of saying Svaha, which is a Sanskrit pronunciation, Tibetans are a little softer. They say Soha. Mm. They don't have that hard, sharp V pronunciation. You can do it either way. Okay. So Tara... If this is for White Tara or Yeshidawa, Wisdom Moon. And the mantra is Om Tari Tutari Turi Svaha. Om Tari Tutari Turi. I'll give this to you so you can okay. read it. Okay. <laughs> and then I'll listen to it later, yeah. You can read it when we do it. But this this was a teaching I received from the Dalai Lama, hmm. along with about 3,000 other people <laughs> at the Pasadena Civic Auditorium. I think it was in 1996. Mm. He gave like a three-day teaching. Mm. In yeah, he was at UCLA that same year, I think, or right around then. Yeah, well, yeah. he was in Pasadena for about a week. Yeah, and I happened to. That was when I met him, or that was when I, you know, I was in a, a UCLA in the, in the audience, but he gave an empowerment. Uh, the second that we went to the empowerment, I guess he was answering questions on the first day, and we went the day that you put something on your head and you bow and they do chants and then they say you received an empowerment. I didn't quite know what had happened, but I received something. <laughs> so that's, that's yeah. you're receiving the blessing of that lineage to do yeah. practices. Yeah, that's what it amounts to. It's a it's a nice thing. Yeah. And, you know, they're they're not holding it back. They're trying to make it available to as many people as possible. Of course, the, the things that require the Nundro, the three-year Nundro I told you, that they're not going to give you that. Right. But these teachings anybody can do, and they're, they're perfectly safe. Yeah. You know, and so this was given by the Dalai Lama, and you you recite the mantra, but you you do it in different chakras. Hmm. I mean, you do the whole mantra in the crown chakra or the head chakra. You do the whole mantra in the throat chakra. You do the whole mantra in the heart chakra. 
and you do you do the whole mantra in the solar plexus chakra and you do the whole mantra in the sacrum and there's a color scheme I've written it down here so when you and you can design this any way you want to like sometimes I do this as a walking meditation there's a, a little lake I walk around you know up in Alaska where I live mm -hmm. it's about half a mile around and I'll while I'm walking with my walking pulse I'll recite the mantra and do this visualization and I will repeat it five times in each chakra but you could do it however you want you could do it three times or one time or you know whatever mm -hmm. but basically I visualize that that uh, cycle of going up in the back and down in the front mm -hmm. But I start out with the head chakra, and I go om tari 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 swaha, om tari 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 swaha, and I'm visualizing the color white huh. in my head. This is what the Dalai Lama gave us. White in the head, then you do it with red in the throat. Red is, the, remember, the color of Amitabha, and also the lord of speech. So it's really connected to teaching and writing and self-expression. Whatever kind of self-expression is connected to this chakra. And then when you go to the heart chakra, the color is blue. And then it's gold in the solar plexus and it's green in the sacral chakra. Uh -huh. In Tibetan Buddhism, they only have five chakras. Uh -huh. They don't mess with the root chakra where the kundalini is coiled. Lama Govinda gives a very good explanation of that in Foundations of Tibetan Mysticism. Uh -huh. And, and instead of having like the crown and the third eye, they just have one for the head that encompasses both of those. So that's how they reduce the more traditional right. seven to five. Hmm. They feel it's safer to do it this way. One of the reasons being that if a person prematurely activates the kundalini energy, that's raw, unrefined primal energy, and that energy is going to activate and energize whatever's inside of you. Yeah. So it's going to act and energize your lower self yeah. before it gets to your higher self. Yeah. So in order for it to be done safely, some purification of the lower self is necessary as a prerequisite. Mm. Another thing that's very different between Vajrayana meditation and the Hindu Tantra, or Kundalini, is that in the Hindu Tantra and Kundalini, you're working with the natural forces as they are. You know, they have particular names for the chakras, they have particular mantras for them, and certain things that will awaken it. And you're working with it as it is as a natural force. In the Tibetan practices of the Vajrayana, Vajrayana actually originated in India, but because of the Islamic persecution, you know, it basically was exterminated in India. And if it hadn't gone to Tibet with Marco, the translator, and some of his other teachers, it would have been lost. Yeah. But and then, uh, <clears throat> just as an aside, the the story behind Shingon is that it it got into China. And then the uh, um, Kukai came up from Japan, brought it back to Japan, and then the next emperor in China outlawed it in China, mm. which is why there's not much Vajrayana in China. So it's mostly in Tibet and on Mount Khoisan. <laughs> uh, well, 
with the Vajrayana practice, you use visualization, in other words, imagery and sound vibration, mantra, not to activate the centers as they are, but to shape them, mm. to control the energy. So you don't start out messing with that raw energy. Cause right. it, it's like, you know, if you if you plug into the electric socket in the house here, it's 120 volts, and you can run it into your laptop with an adapter, and it, it's friendly and it works. But if, if you tried to plug it in to uh, the Edison plant, where they've got these huge generators, it would destroy your laptop. Hmm. It would burn it up, because the amplitude would be more than could be tolerated. Right. Well, the Kundalini is like that type of amplitude. That's why a lot of the yogis in India are psychotic. Hmm. They, they seek power first. And the teaching is seek wisdom before you seek power. Right. Because if you don't have the wisdom, you're not going to know how to use the power in a constructive way. It'll destroy you. Hmm. It'll, it'll activate and empower the shadow part of you. And you'll become a victim of that energy. And there are many people that have been harmed by that. That's also why they say you should only practice kundalini yoga under a qualified teacher hmm. who can guide you each step of the way. Yeah. And tell you what to do and not to do. And what to do and not to do includes physical yoga, it includes diet, it includes breathing exercises, it includes mantras, visualization, and the guidance of the guru. If somebody tries it on their own, they're playing with fire. So, you know, this is what Lama Govinda writes in the Foundations of Tibetan Mysticism. He does a comparison. That's why the Tibetan system just has the fire. And once you've acquired the wisdom and you've gained a certain degree of enlightenment, then it becomes safe to activate that energy. Hmm. Because the vibrations of the mantra will dominate the energy. The higher chakras dominate the lower ones. So you want to activate the higher chakras first. That's the safest thing to do. Yeah. You want to activate the in the if you're using the seven system, the crown, the third eye, the throat and the heart. Before you mess with anything below that. Hmm. <clears throat> it's easier to activate the lower ones. Right. I mean Anybody who's been horny has had their sacral chakra very activated. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's easy to activate that natural force. Yeah. But if it's unleashed and not tamed or not integrated, it can become dangerous. Yeah. So it's not intelligent procedure to just mess with that. But people who want sensation and pleasure and they want a quick fix they'll go to that because it takes more time, discipline, effort, patience to do it the safer way. Hmm. But this gives you permanent results. Yeah. And it's safe. It's not going to put you at risk. Whereas the other way, it's very dicey. Hmm. I'm sure that there's a parallel to this in the Western well, the thing Catholic is, tradition. It's done its, its work. Um, <clears throat> people... Um, you know, second and third generation, you know, Protestant 
of various forms will have severe blockages mm. and have a sense of not only that this is dangerous but evil that the, that this is this is evil down here the sexual repression yeah. Yeah. and that 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 the love of the heart and be weary of your own mind you know like don't pay too much attention to your mind but like stick with god the heart and then all of this is just your gross human nature or evil or the devil's down there and so so i hear shades of that in um the idea of of uh, the Kundalini being very very dangerous. I mean, it makes sense to do things step by step. Mm-hmm. I tend to like. I'll introduce the idea of the bandhas, which traditionally was supposed to not be taught to to, to anybody, but I teach it to my students in yoga classes at Crunch Fitness, um, and everybody does. It's public information now, so that includes activating the pelvic floor and alongside the the belly in and up and the throat. And allowing energy to flow, but and to my mind, I've never seen anybody like light up and become psycho, like from like starting to exercise the bandhas and to mm-hmm. circulate energy. And and we do focus very much on all the the chakras. When in my personal classes, just to go off on this aside, because this is related, I I bring them in. We go om ahom. We, we sit around the statues and things, and then we go to where we're focusing on activating the pelvic floor on the exhale and allowing the energy to move up the spine, and then we relax for the, for the inhale and allow the energy to move down the front, and that's the first step. Then we move up to the sacrum and shine golden light into the sacrum and connect with the beings that reside there and be grateful for them and have a two-way connection. Mm-hmm. And then from that foundation, we start to move up into um, solar plexus and establishing a healthy sense of confidence and, and, and not, a, not an exaggerated sense of ego, but not like we do in the West or in our misinterpretation of the East, crushing the ego underfoot in the mm-hmm. sense of the ego as the solar plexus, the, the, the individual temporary identity of, uh, of opinions and ideas and action and digesting food. And then we move up into the heart. Having, having all of this established, then we can really love without having to like worry about all this stuff down here being this shadowy unknown thing we're going to work with in the higher grades. And then from there, uh, moving in, and this is of course what my dad raised me on, was this particular working. And then mm-hmm. the hung, and then the third eye with the E, and then the om with the top. Then after that, we go into the temple and we do the middle pillar, which starts at the top, and uh, with the Ehie, then the Yodhebab Elohim, which I've always took to be a little bit out of touch with um, the nature of reality and the physical universe. What's called in, in 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 Hermetic Kabbalah the physical universe, as if it were this thing that you could like separate out from everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, where we're working with have, being grounded on the ground and circulating the light first coming up from the earth being much more grounded so we do those two practices in the same um, well that sounds like a pretty safe it sounds yeah. safe to me okay so i guess i don't from, know what it is out, that's unsafe you're starting out with i think i've never practiced the uh so you're starting out the with... kundalini awakening then because i i don't know i mean is there some pra- like i i've there's heard a school that of, there's a school of of yoga kundalini the, yoga the Sikhs. the Sikh religion oh. goes in for that quite a bit oh okay I have a friend who's a Sikh. And that, you know, that, if someone operates within that system, they're yeah. going to be pretty safe. Oh, okay. Because they've, but it's if somebody experiments with it on their own 
and they're trying to get power. Right. And it has a lot to do with what your motivation is. Yeah. For doing the practice. And the other thing it has a lot to do with is what's in your unconscious. Mm. So that's a very individual thing. Different people have different things in their unconscious. And yeah. For some people, there's very little risk. But for somebody that's got a something in there that they're not ready to face, right. it could Maybe be they've been holding it in the closet and keeping the door locked and shut, and you throw it open. Or particularly and somebody that's been sexually repressed right. has succumbed to have been influenced by that toxic uh, Christian belief right. associating the creative life force energy with the devil. And then maybe also having been molested by the priest. And then, then you then you well, go straight to awakening the kundalini. Yeah, you want to that like compound, work with other things first. That compounds it. Yeah. Well, if there's a lot of rage in the unconscious, yeah, that's going to get energized and it's going to come out and it's going to take control of the person. They're yeah. not going to have mastery or control over it. Yeah. But it depends on, you know, what cards you're, you're playing with. Yeah. And we don't know what's in our unconscious until we look until we, <laughs> yeah. yeah we find out yeah so it's it's very much an individual thing i feel like lately i've been going through a process where a lot of rage has been coming out but i have been able to control it you're ready for it yeah yeah and and reel it in see it for what it is and not allow it to mess up my life you can you know? transmute that energy yeah. it's an alchemical process yeah but that energy that's in the lower chakras is energy that we need because that's right. the raw energy out of which we're going to transform our consciousness. Yeah. Without that energy, we won't transform. But the energy has to itself go through the transformation process. Yeah, yeah. As our heart evolves and we become more loving, that that integrates it. Yeah. That integrates that it. That makes sense. So, uh, you know, Lama Govinda was being very cautious because when you pass something on to somebody else, you have a responsibility for right. what results they get. Yeah. And if it's done irresponsibly and there's bad results, then you are karmically responsible. Right. But this thing that you learned from your dad, I'm sure it's very safe. I feel like when I told that story about Yeshi and, and the, when she was attacked and the person I told it to later came back and said, you know, said horrible, you know, said that I had, I had traumatized her by telling her about that and that she thought that this was a horrible religion that I was describing. I felt like um, I had done wrong. I felt like I had, now I need to clarify the teachings of Yeshi yeah. because I opened my mouth a little and the wrong thing came out. Or, or maybe the right thing, you know, maybe that'll, that's towards something else, you know. Well, there's something in her that needs healing. Right. And you activated into her consciousness right but, but she got nothing but the phrase forgiving the rapist like that was the only thing that she took and then and applying it to herself yeah and, and she's she, probably got a tremendous amount of pain guilt and anger right right that she's carrying a heavy burden and rage and yeah rage yeah uh, not 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 in the place to be thinking or talking about she has every right to that yeah well she's not she's not at a place where she's ready to to forgive. Forgiveness is a process. Right. And just like the grieving process, you have to work through the stage of claiming your hurt, getting in touch with all your pain. Yeah. And and the stage of self blame and guilt. And then the stage of poor me, I'm a victim, feeling helpless and hopeless. 
then the victim anger stage, I hate that son of a bitch, I want to kill him. Yeah. Where you're in rage. And, and then the healthy anger stage where you take the focus off of the perpetrator and you use the energy of that anger to, for self-protection in the future and to do things for yourself to make your life better now and in the future. Mm-hmm. And then eventually you come to the acceptance stage. Yeah. And then you have to do, well, what I've, I've been doing a teaching on this actually. You do what's called a bubble meditation, hmm. where you visualize yourself in a bubble. And uh, if I do this for Christians, so you visualize Jesus is in the bubble with you. He's the master of forgiveness. And you ask him to help you work on forgiveness. It's a healing process. Hmm. It's not just done to accommodate the other person. Right. But as long as we carry it's desire for, us. for revenge, we're yeah. carrying a toxic emotion in our soul that's poisoning us. Yeah. And it will affect all of our relationships and it will block our spiritual growth. It will prevent us from being free because the event that hurt us is in the past, but we're still living it in the present. And we will continue to until the healing takes place. Yeah. So this healing process is very, very necessary. Yeah. So... The five steps are something you have to work again and again. You don't again. rush. You can't rush to the fifth step. Yeah. Well, no, you certainly can't. Yeah. And well, if you want me to, I'll I'll give you a rundown on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. You you do a couple of rehearsals before you take on the thing that you're having trouble forgiving. So you're there, and you're you're in the bubble, and you've got your spiritual helper. Uh-huh. If you're a Christian, it would be Jesus. If you're you know, a Buddhist, you can have Yeshi in there with you. you know? <laughs> Whoever you want. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Whoever you want. And you ask them to help you work on forgiving. And so then what you do is you think of someone that you have a, a personal connection to in your own life. That you have a positive relationship with. They could be living or dead. Uh-huh. Like it could be your dad, say, or your mom who passed away, or it could be someone right now, you know, that you're involved with, or whatever. But overall, you love the person, they love you, it's a positive relationship. The energy is positive. You visualize them coming to you in this empty space, in your imagination, in their bubble. These bubbles are transparent. So their bubble comes right up and touches yours. And you're looking them right in the eye, and you say hello to them, and then you start talking to them. And you you could do this out loud, or you could you could do it just mentally, you know, non-verbally, but in your mind. But you talk to them, and you think of some time in the relationship you had with them that they said or did something that hurt you, that disappointed you, and it may have been unintentional on their part, or it may have been intentional. doesn't matter. It hurt you. And you you bring that up. You remember it. You bring that up, and you tell them what occurred, you know, what they did. And notice how you feel now about it. Remember how you felt then? Tell them how you felt, and you might want to briefly go through those steps. Getting in touch with your pain, claiming your hurt, how you felt, and then did you blame yourself? 
Because often, particularly when you're a child, children will blame themselves. They idolize the adults. And so they think, well, I deserve this. I did something wrong. Uh, it's my fault. So they'll, they'll have self-blame, even though they don't deserve the self-blame. Yeah. Uh, it was somebody else's decision to do that, whatever they did. It wasn't your decision. So you have to get over the self-blame. If a person carries guilt and self-blame, then unconsciously they feel like they deserve to be punished. Mm. And they'll look for punishment from somebody else, unconsciously, in their relationships. Mm. So you have to work through that. Then the victim stage, how you felt a victim and Sometimes a victim, when you're in that stage, you you might feel your life is ruined. I'll never be the same again. Poor me. Why did they do this to me? I'm no good. I'm a loser. I, uh, you know, you get depressed and you get discouraged, and you know you're seeing things through very gloomy eyes. <laughs> you you know you feel horrible. Yeah. And you feel like you're a failure, and oh, it's you know. But you have to allow yourself to fully experience it in order to process it and work beyond it. The only way you get beyond it is by going through it. You never can get beyond it if you try to avoid it. And the normal thing that people do is avoidance. They'll go from the stage of hurt and they'll skip these other stages and they'll go right into the victim anger stage and the revenge seeking stage because that energy makes you feel empowered. Right. And you feel like it doesn't hurt. I'm going to kill that person. Yeah, or, that makes sense. I'm I'm going to see them suffer the same way I did. If you have that feeling of hatred and the thirst and desire for revenge, uh, and you're harboring that, and it feels good because you feel empowered. So many people, they're too, I would say, really too cowardly to allow themselves to go through the the guilt and the victim stage because that your ego diminishes when you go into those stages huh. and you're experiencing you know pain and suffering I mean, it's not fun by any means but then you go into the victim anger stage and you have to allow yourself to feel all that anger but you restrain yourself from acting it out you in other words you allow it to pass through your consciousness and then you, you move into the positive anger stage where you turn that energy around and use it. You talk to the wounded child in you or whatever. I'm going to protect you. Nobody is ever going to do this to us again. And you discover you know, what led up to it, what are the warning signs. And you use it for self-protection in the future. And then you use it to think of things you can do to make you and your life better. Huh. And you so that's a power. You don't want to suppress it or deny it. You're rechanneling it in a constructive way. Yeah. And then you come into the finally you come into the acceptance stage. When you're in the acceptance stage, you've fully digested the thing. You've accepted that, yeah, this happened, but now it's in the past tense, happened. It is no longer continuing to happen to me. I am no longer suffering the hurt. I'm no longer feeling guilty. I'm no longer the victim. I'm no longer the angry victim that wants revenge. 
I've done things, to, I am doing things to protect myself and to make my life better, and it's in the past. And when you can go through all of that and revisit it and feel at peace with it the whole time, then you know the healing has happened. But as long as you keep feeling any negativity in any of those steps, the healing isn't complete yet. It's in process. Yeah. But it's possible to get stuck in any one of those steps and stay there, you know, for indefinite amount of time. I'll give you a handout I have on this. Oh, yeah. And you could share it with people. Cool. Yeah. So, anyway, you do the first one with someone you have a positive relationship with, and you say to them, after you go through the five steps, I forgive you for, you know, whatever it was. And whether it was intentional or unintentional, I forgive you. And then you say, please forgive me for anything that I ever said or did, whether it was intentional or unintentional, that caused you hurt. You ask them to forgive you. And then you feel at peace with it. Then you do, and you can invite them into your bubble if you want to, to help you with the rest of this work. And this, this work might take you weeks or months or even longer. Then you invite someone that you do not have a personal relationship with, but that you know was a negative person. You know, it could be somebody from the history books or somebody in the news or somebody, you know, that's a bad person, mm. a serial killer, a rapist, uh, a dictator, you know, a cruel person like somebody like Saddam Hussein, Osama bin Laden, Adolf Hitler, you know, take your pick. Somebody that did a lot of bad stuff, you bring them to you in a bubble and you face them and you recite to them whatever you know about the bad things that they did. And, you know, you let them know this was wrong, uh, whatever you want to say to them. But then you say, but I want to forgive you. Or if you feel you're ready to forgive them, you say you forgive them. And on the behalf of all their victims, because you weren't one of them, you work through those same steps. And when you get to the point where you feel at peace with what this person has done, not in the sense that you're saying it was okay. You're not right. saying it was okay. You're not condoning it. You're not doing that. But you're, you're just accepting very objectively, like with the mirror-like wisdom of the discriminating wisdom, this happened. We can't change it. We accept that, yes, it happened. It's in the past. And then you tell the person that, and you know what they did this, they were acting out of their own sickness. And you start having compassion for them because you know the karma they created is causing them mucho suffering in the future. And now you tell them you forgive them. And you're at peace with them. So after you've done that, then you're ready to take on the one that the personal issue with the person now in this life that you is hard to forgive. Yeah. And you do the same things. We've done in these two rehearsals, and you bring them to you in their bubble, and you face them. And you start reciting to them what they did that hurt you. And you notice where you are. 
You know, you start out with cleaning your hurt. Tell them. Get in touch with the hurt. Allow yourself to feel the sadness, the pain, the disappointment. You know, if the person betrayed you, they lied to you, they stole from you, they stabbed you in the back, uh, they embarrassed you in front of other people, or, you know, whatever, whatever they did. You say that, and then you feel the heart, the pain, the sadness, and you express that to them. And then you move into the guilt, and you look deeper into yourself and see if there was any self-blame attached to that. Did I set myself up for this? Did I ask for it? Uh, is it my fault? Did I deserve it? And really search into your soul and see if there's any self-blame or guilt. And then you've got to tell yourself, no, this was not my fault, not my responsibility. I did not deserve it. This person made the choice to do this to me, acting out of their unhealed pain and anger and so forth. And then you move into the victim stage and you notice how it destroyed your ego, at least, you know, temporarily. Yeah. And it, it you've tasted the bitterness of, of defeat for the ego. You felt helpless, hopeless, discouraged, Poor me, depressed, and some people stay in that wall of self-pity for a long time. You have to allow yourself to feel the self-pity, but you sure as hell don't want to get stuck in this step because your life is just going to come to a rushing halt. You know? right. If you're there and you stay hung up in that, you're just you. Nobody's going to want to be around you because you're going to be depressing to be around. Yeah. And you're just, you're going to become a tragedian <laughs> in the worst sense of the word. You'll see every the tragic side of everything in life. And you'll be pessimistic and you'll have the blues all the time. But you pay your dues, you feel your blues, but you process through that. And then you move up from the victim poor me stage to the victim anger stage where there's this rush of Mars energy, you know, this this rush of solar plexus energy or sacral energy where you feel a sense of empowerment and self-righteousness and indignation, which is really healthy, but you also feel a sense of anger, rage, and hatred towards the perpetrator. And you want to get even. You want revenge. They deserve to suffer the same way they made me suffer. I'm going to hurt them. I've got to hurt them. I've got to pay them back. I can't let them get away with this. So, you know, you judge them and you want to sentence them and you want to carry out the sentence, basically. So you're either going to arrange for you or for someone else to hurt them. You know, you might be subtle about it. You might be two-faced and you know, have you ever read that uh, poem by William Blake called The Poison Tree? Mm -mm. You should read that. It's all of, it's about forgiveness and the failure to forgive and how it destroys relationships. Mm. The Poison Tree by Blake, William Blake. Mm. I've got a musical version of it I could play for you if you want to hear it. Um, anyway, 
you allow yourself to feel all those horrible emotions. You don't suppress them. You don't say, oh, that's evil. I can't feel that. You are honest with your feelings. Yeah. You allow yourself to fully experience and feel all of that. But you do not act on any of it. You control yourself. You restrain yourself. You hold that energy. And then, instead of focusing on this shitty person that you want to screw over and get back at, you look back to yourself and you still continue to feel outrage at what they did. Disgust at what they did. But you decide to use that energy for self-protection so that no one can ever do that to you in the future. Again. Yeah, yeah. And you, you study the history of whatever happened. I mean, it's, we're speaking very generally here, but in many cases, if it's a relationship thing, you can look back and you can see there were warning signs along the way that could have told you to look out. And you might have overlooked them, maybe because you were so maybe intentionally enthralled with the person, or you were having so much fun with them, you didn't care, or whatever it was, or you wanted to trust them, you know, whatever it was. So you figure out how you can protect yourself in the future, so nobody can do that to you again. Because you notice in people's lives, a lot of times they keep suffering the same disappointments over and over again Yeah. in relationships or in jobs or you know, wherever it is and that's because they haven't consciously realized what is creating this so in a way there is a responsibility you know, if you keep allowing it to happen or if you keep acting out of the same desire for the same thing and it leads to the same outcome that you don't want that's a sign that there's something that needs to be altered in who you trust and how you trust them. Yeah. Everyone isn't worthy of your trust. Because a lot of people are carrying around wounds and they want to act out their victim anger on people. Yeah. But they, they're not conscious of this. So they do it unconsciously. So unconsciously, they identify someone in a future relationship with someone that hurt them in a past relationship. And then they acted out on them. I've, yeah. I've had that happen to me. Yeah, It's very common. So you use it to protect yourself, and then you just you examine your life, you examine your conscience, and you think about what are some positive things that I can do for Kess or Edward or whoever it is that will make my life better. Forget that fool. They're going to suffer their karma. It's not my job to be the executioner. Yeah. Let's use this energy to make my life better. And that frees you from being obsessed with what happened and getting even. Because that ties you karmically to the person. Yeah. <clears throat> Remember my dad's old thing about love and hate being opposite sides of the coin of attachment? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, certain types of love. Yeah. Oh. Eros, the uh, possessive I mean, love. I, I talked to your dad about forgiveness, and he was hell-bent not to forgive <laughs> certain people. And 
So I just realized, okay. He's yeah, it probably to him sounded like a Christian thing, and that's kind of my I have him yeah. and me. Well, like you, know. you said, he's kind of like a wrathful. Yeah, a wrathful Buddha. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, I didn't, you know, push it with him because I could tell yeah. it was pointless too. Yeah. So you work through this with this person, but when you start out, you might find that you are stuck in one of those stages. So that's as far as you go. And you just say, well, I don't even want to forgive you yet. Yeah. And you cuss them out. Right. That's where you're at. Yeah. So then what you do is you ask yourself, well, could I pray for them? No, I don't want to pray for them. I hate them. Okay, then could I pray for the grace to be able to pray for them. And then you start doing that. And you keep working at it until you get to the point where, okay, I'll pray for them. I hate them, but I'm going to pray for them. And you start praying for them. And then after you work with that for a while, you ask to pray for the grace to work the process to forgive them. And then you go back and you start working it. And if you're stuck in that victim anger stage, you have to be honest and say, okay, that's where I'm at. I still hate them. I still want them to suffer. I still want revenge. But I'm going to pray for them. And I'm going to pray for the grace to let go of my hatred. And you just pray for that. Yeah. And each time you do it, you let their bubble go off into space and... You know, you dissolve the visualization. And then it doesn't mean you let them out of jail. It no. just means you forgive them. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're going to forgive them, yeah. but it's going to take time. Yeah. Because what you're going to do is you're going to go to the full depth of how much this really hurts you. Mm. A lot of times, people, I know men and probably women too, they, they think they're tough and they're strong, and so they minimize and deny how much they've actually been hurt. Mm. They don't claim they're hurt. Yeah. They deny, oh, yeah, they hurt me, but I'm I'm over that now. You know, yeah. That, it's a way of bullshitting yourself. Right. So you don't have to go there and feel it. But the healing will not take place as long as we lie to ourselves, and we're not willing to have the courage to feel it. The yeah. truth of, you're experiencing the truth of your soul. And the truth will set us free. It's one of the great wisdom sayings of Jesus. And the truth he's talking about is the truth of our soul. And that means seeing both the light and dark side of ourselves. That's the truth. And as long as we keep denying the dark side or the things that are not comfortable and we're basically lying to ourselves, that will keep us stuck in our growth as human beings and spiritual beings. That's why the feel-good spirituality is a recipe for failure. Yeah. So we allow ourselves, we might not be ready to experience all of the hurt in one shot. Right. So you have to keep going back, doing it and doing it and doing it until you can feel the hurt, process the hurt, you're conscious of it, but then you're at peace with it, and you've actually it becomes a memory and no longer an ongoing 
thing you're carrying yeah, as a burden. Mm. And the same thing with the guilt, and the same thing with the victim stage, same thing with the victim anger stage. So it gets gradually, the whole thing gets placed where it belongs into the past, and you're no longer carrying those feelings. They are a memory. You don't forgive and forget. That would be idiotic. You forgive and remember. <laughs> you remember, so you can protect yourself mm. and prevent it from ever happening again. Yeah. In a relationship or in your life, whatever it was. It's ex you learn from experience. You know, experience is food for the soul, and that's how we gain wisdom mm. through learning from the experience. If you forget, then you'll have to go back and have the same damn thing happen again. <laughs> Another learning opportunity. Yeah. Or you can, many things you can learn from the examples of others so you don't have to suffer the same thing they're suffering. Mm. If you realize what their mistakes were, you don't have to make those mistakes. I liked my dad's uh, definition of education or the definition of formal education. Somewhere in it, it involved um, to safely transmit vicarious experience so that you can. Um, maximize your life choice potential by being able to move forward from the wisdom gained by other people making those mistakes That's and having right. those experiences. They are, they are our teachers. Yeah. And the people that make mistakes are teachers for as if we can, we know how to learn from them. Yeah, or explorers even. Someone goes down a particular trail and they come back to tell you what they found. You know, exactly. like you could say that's a mistake because they went off the main trail, but maybe they did it on purpose. And even our enemies can be our teachers in that same way. Yeah. So that's, that's the wise thing to do because it takes a lot of time to learn the lessons through your own direct experience. Yeah. And if you can learn it from someone else who's already spent years or whatever going through the process, it saves you the trouble. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's better things to do with your life. Right. Yeah. Much better things. So, you know the healing has happened when you can go through all five of the steps and remain inwardly at peace in your spiritual center You've accepted and acknowledged it. You've blessed, you've blessed the person. You forgive them. You let it go. You put it in the past. Hmm. And you're at peace with it. Until then, we have to keep working the steps. But that's a healing process. And the work of healing, while we're working the process, the higher self or the the Christ, the Holy Spirit, is doing the healing for us in the unconscious. Mm. It's changing the energy. It's transmuting the energy. So all that energy that was trapped in being stuck on this is freed for positive use to make our life better mm. and to expand our consciousness towards reality. And we've learned more compassion. So it's a win-win for us. One reason to give Forgiveness is for your own peace of mind. Yeah. When we refuse to forgive, we continue to keep our own mind disturbed. Yeah. Which interferes with our ability to pray and meditate and go deeper. And when you put it in the past, if this person is a real jerk, 
that you had to forgive, and you don't, you don't have to ever speak to them again. Forgiving doesn't mean that you welcome them with open arms. That's a choice. If if you feel that you guys could work this out and have a healthy relationship, sure, you can invite them back into your life. But if you don't, if they're just going to keep right doing you yeah. wrong, yeah, you divorce them. I had one of those where, uh, yeah, there was someone I trusted, and then later I. I felt I had been too harsh with him, or maybe I was in the wrong partially. So I, you know, he became my friend again, and then he betrayed my trust again. And it's like, okay, that's the third time I'm an idiot. <laughs> you know, like. Well, what, yeah, what Delane, that woman I was telling you about, that used to live up in Lake Arrowhead, who worked with the Course in Miracles, what she says, what you do, she's the one that taught me about this bubble meditation. Mm. And the other steps came from a book called The Process of Forgiveness, which is by William Manninger. Mm. A Trappist monk who's one of the founders of Centering Prayer. Um, she said, you imagine a ribbon wrapping around your bubble and the other person's bubble, creating like an infinity sign. Mm -hmm. And if you, once you've completed the process, if you do not want to reassociate yourself with this person, you'll visualize a big cosmic scissors coming along and snipping the connection between your bubbles. Uh, and then you visualize them and their bubble floating off into space and disappearing in you and your bubble. And what that does is it literally, it severs the karmic tie you have with that person. Since you have forgiven them, you won't have to meet them in a future life or in this life or have anything to do with them and there'll be no more energy going back and forth on the mental plane or psychic plane between you two, mm. as long as you hang on to a grudge, you are in continual psychic connection and interaction with that soul and they with you. Mm. And you will be drawn together because you guys have karma to work out. Mm. It might not be in this life, but it'll be in a future life. And basically what you want to do is you want to get rid of them. Yeah. <laughs> Let them go their way. They're karma will be faced and your karma will be faced mm. and it'll be resolved but it's not it's not my job to be the judge the jury and the sentencer and the executioner of their karma right let leave that to the forces of the universe or god or whatever i'm thinking of a particular case where there was um someone who i feel that i've forgiven but I, I take it upon myself to let the world know what he's up to and what my experience was with him. Well, if you're going to save other people from suffering, yeah. you're doing a noble thing. Out of thing. compassion. Yeah, yeah, you're doing a noble thing. Because if you don't, you bear a little responsibility for the wrong Exactly. Does. I mean, like a classic, uh, classic example is, is this. Uh, there's somebody that you know, this is all hypothetical, mm -hmm. there's somebody that you know that's a serial rapist or a serial murderer, you know, who kidnaps innocent children and tortures them and, you know, kills them or whatever. <clears throat> Someone that's a monster. <clears throat> and they they tried to make you their victim, but you, you found out, you figured out their game before they were able to play it on you, and you got rid of them from your own life. But you know that that person's out there and they're going to keep doing this to other people. Yeah. So, 
are you in a position to kill them or get them arrested or whatever it is, do you just stay quiet about it and let them go their way and continue doing the evil? Or do you do something that's going to prevent them from doing right, it? Right, And could you even do that bubble method and cut the cord with them and let them fade into darkness? Would that even be appropriate if they are out doing bad things? You know they're out doing bad things, and by being quiet about it, you're passively assisting it in a way. You're, you're uh, allowing it. You're naming yeah. it. Well, what I would say the thing to do would be they would need to be exposed. Well, I, I think we do have an obligation yeah. to protect the innocent, to protect virtue and righteousness. I mean, that's what the Kabura principle is. You know. Yeah, justice. We have to uphold truth and justice, freedom, uh, and righteousness. Yeah. Virtue. If we don't, if we're not clear with our conscience, then we, our spiritual growth will be retarded. So you have to live a righteous life. That's just a fundamental prerequisite. Yeah. If a person isn't living a righteous life, the amount of spiritual assistance that they'll be able to receive will be thereby limited. Yeah. Of course, we may have unconscious things in us, but if we're sincerely working to overcome that, the grace will be there to help us. Yeah. Especially if we're willing to take responsibility for the true, full truth of our soul. And we're not in denial. Right. And we're not misusing our authority, our power, our position to take advantage of others or gratify our false self, our ego. And that kind of brings to mind the idea of the, the shadow, the Jungian idea, and and projecting the shadow outward on someone else and saying they're the monster rather than being able to admit that. Yeah, that's, that's the classic thing. We have to integrate our own shadow. Yeah. And the shadow doesn't contain just negative things. It often contains positive things, too, yeah. in ourself that we haven't accepted. It may contain gifts and talents and abilities and qualities we have that we were afraid to exercise for whatever reason. Sometimes it might be because, well, if I become that way, then people will take advantage of me, so I'm not going to be that kind and giving. Right. Yeah. Because I was hurt the last time I was kind and giving. Yeah, or the last time I opened myself up in a relationship, I was betrayed, and so now, you know, I'm hesitating because I'm afraid I'm going to be betrayed. And, you know. Yeah, I'm a great respecter of Carl Jung, though one thing I disagree with him on, and I think you'll probably agree with me on this, was he studied Eastern religion and Western religion, and he felt the Westerners should stick to Western religion right. because the Western psyche and the Eastern psyche are different. Were different. Yeah. And so it was inappropriate for a Westerner to practice the meditation of the secret of the golden flower, hmm. which I started practicing when I came into it and the being that was I was contacted was a western being but he gave me all the teachings in the book before I read it <laughs> you know? I th where I think there's some truth in that is like if somebody's raised in a Christian church it might be useful for them to study Hermetic Kabbalah like maybe before jumping ship completely into a foreign system that is brand new to them 
And I would I would agree. Yeah. The person just has to go with what feels right. Yeah, it's not for everybody. Everybody's path. It's true in their heart. Yeah. And uh, there are so many choices. There are more choices than ever in the past world, you know, because it used to be you were born in a certain geographical location and your options were determined by that environment. By your family, by, yeah. And that was it. Now we have access to a worldwide selection of teachings and practices and traditions. I've heard it mentioned that LSD can accidentally awaken the Kundalini. And uh, for people who aren't ready, and sometimes people go mad that way. Yes. How, do you have any thoughts about that? Because I, I don't know if I understand. Well, LSD is a non-specific psychic amplifier, which means it creates a big psychic opening in a person's consciousness. And it makes things that are in the unconscious come into consciousness. So it depends a lot on what the psychodynamics are, what's inside the person's unconscious. It also depends upon the environment that you take it in, you know, the set and setting were the two terms that were used. So the set has to do with your your mental preparation, your attitude and your mindset and your motivation as to why you're taking it what you want to get out of it. You know, are you using this as a recreational substance? You're going to go to an amusement park or to a, a rave or, you know. Right. You're going to go for external sensation and pleasure, sex, whatever, stimulation, entertainment. Or are you going to go out in nature to commune with nature and the elements? Are you doing it to seek and search inside your soul, to find truth, to deepen your self-knowledge and self-awareness? So you could use it in a sacred way. You could use it in a, in a uh, worldly way. You could use it in a profane way. I just gave, gave me an insight about a particular time so I took mushrooms. So there's the set. Yeah. There's a crucial, and the setting has to do with the actual physical environment in which you do it. And who's there, or if you're not, if you're by yourself, yeah, who you're with, you have to be very careful and mindful about the set and the setting. And I mean, this is my opinion. I would not use it frivolously, right, or superficially. And I would be around people that I have implicit trust in, and that I have positive relationship with, mutual respect, and I, we would define to each other the boundaries of what the experience is, and so forth. Yeah. Would I be the only one taking it and the other person not? Would the other person be there as a guide, you know, if, if I needed assistance to talk to, or there are certain things that you can read to someone that will guide them into a spiritual experience. But, uh, it's a non-specific psychic amplifier. Hmm. Psychedelic means mind manifesting. The Greek term psychedelic means mind manifesting. So it's going to manifest into consciousness whatever is within you. For some people, this would be a very dangerous thing to do. Hmm. If there's something 
just below the surface of consciousness that they're not ready to face. Like this anger thing, for example. Yeah. If someone's got some victim anger, rage, and hatred that hasn't been healed, yeah, it's like Russian roulette. So you, <laughs> there's one bullet. There's one bullet in the gun, and there's six chambers. And you, yeah. when you take it, you're spinning the chambers. Right. You don't know which time the bullet's going to be in the chamber, and by that I mean. Which time you can have a bad trip. Right. Or if somebody's going to say the exact words that someone said when, when you had that bad experience you're not looking at, you know, or whatever, it's going to bring it all so flooding back. It has the... Well, the one person said... I think Aldous Huxley quoted this. To, to, uh, to fall in hell or soar angelic, just take a pinch of psychedelic. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of a broad outline you know yeah it's true territory. I've experienced that too and you guide it yourself which is I mean once you get used to it it's 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 very empowering because you can do it when you're not on psychedelics too when you realize you're going down a particular road and you can decide to change but when you're on psychedelics and you're like why is the trip so bad oh my god why is it getting worse oh why is it even worse now and it's because of that exact thought process that that you just had where you know oh this is uncomfortable hmm let's move over here love and and togetherness you know and then it goes away and then you know but but someone who's brand new with with some heavy psychedelics, like well, not not understanding that, can can easily go down into a bad trip. I've actually done it yeah. on purpose before. I've done a lot of psychedelics, but um, well, yeah, I would <laughs> say if someone is considering experimenting, which I did when I was twenty years old, uh, take it seriously. Yeah, prepare for it. Realize, know yourself. Realize that. There are many possibilities. Do it in a safe environment. Do not go out in public. And you may have a, a spiritual awakening. It may deepen your self-knowledge and understanding. You may see things that you don't want to see, but don't fight against it. Remember that you will come down and just go with the flow of it. Yeah. And uh, what else would I say? I would say, have some good stimuli around you, you know, like some sacred objects yeah. <laughs> that you feel a connection to. Yeah. Have someone read something to you that will help you. Focus on your higher self, your better angels. And if you experience something you know, more of the dark side, realize that this is temporary and that it's a lesson and it's not... It's not going to hurt you, ultimately. You're going to come out of it. Yeah. Uh, but be prepared for whatever. Hmm. But remember, it's you will come down. Subjectively, you might be in places where it seems like you're never going <laughs> to yeah. come out of it. Yeah. Objectively, you will come out of it. That's part of the, the archetype of hell is that subjectively the person is convinced that there's no way out in time or space. Mm. That's called the no-exit situation. Yeah. That's what makes it so hellish. But objectively, there will come an ending to it. 
But I, I took you on a sidetrack. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, well, we talked about this forgiveness practice, and then remind me if I don't remember to, to give you the handout. Okay. It's in the other room. I know right where it is. Because <clears throat> I, I did a teaching on this at the retreat center I was at in Amarillo mm -hmm. for the retreat staff. And so they made copies, and I have a few leftovers. So, okay, we talked about the white tara practice. So what you would do, this is a suggestion, if you were going to do a white tara visualization practice, you would start out by going Om Ahum, doing those mudras. And then if you wanted to do the wisdom Buddhas to invoke that energy, you would, or that mandala, visualizing the colors that go with it. And I've written them down here. Om, Om, Trang, Hri, Ah. Then you, you invoke the mandala of the five Dhyani Buddhas. And then you take your mala and the mantra is right here where you see it says Om Tari Titari Turi Swaha. Okay. So you would just start doing this white Tara mantra and you begin by visualizing white Tara in your head. You go you could go once around the mala doing white tar, once around the mala doing red tar in the throat, once around the mala doing blue tar in the heart, once around the mala doing gold tara in the solar plexus, and once around the mala doing green tara in the sacral center. By the way, green tara is the female consort of Amoga City, the wisdom Buddha of the all-accomplishing wisdom. Mm. Each of those Buddhas has a female Buddha consort. And Green Tara goes with the Mother City. Okay. You know, they, they're all in the Yab Yum position. The Yab Yum? Yab Yum. That's the, the, the sexual union oh, right. position of the, uh, the Yoni and yeah. the Lingam, is the, the Hindu terms for it. Right. In Tibetan, they call it Yab Yom. So, like Yeshi and Padmasambhava when she's sitting facing him. Okay. Yeah. Very yummy. I yab Yom. What? <laughs> Very yummy. <laughs> <laughs> yab Yom. That's an easy way to remember it. So, you would just, you know, you would. Om Tari Tatari Turi Swaha. Om Tari Tatari Turi Swaha. Each time you repeat the mantra, you, you go one bead. Om Tari 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 Swaha. Om Tari 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 Swaha. And you don't have to do it out loud. You can, because the main thing about a mantra is doing it in the mind. But if you do do it out loud, then it engages the physical body more. It brings it down to the earth plane more. Huh. It brings it into mouth, Kuth more. So you can do this any way you want to, but just using this, you keep repeating the same mantra but the visualization simply changes as you move from one center, energy center, and color to the next. You work your way down the front of your body doing it, and then you you can do it working your way up the back of the body. Yeah. And you can 
you can just do like each time you do the mantra once you go from one center to the next when you're doing the circle thing hmm. okay well I mean you can play with it you know yeah yeah just play with it yeah, it's very simple to do and you can pass this on to <laughs> if you have some students that want to get involved with Yeshi Sogol mm -hmm. this would be a good preliminary process because Yeshi Sogol is an emanation of the white tar mm. so first you get in touch with the source with Yeshi's spiritual bodhisattvic source white tar or if you want to get in the, touch with the source of white tara then you do Omani Padme Hum now in Lama Govinda's teaching, the seed syllable for Amitabha is Hri, H-R-I-H. -H. You notice when you say Hri, that sound pulls energy up your spine. Hmm. Like Hri. Like start out by feeling Hri in the lower center and you notice that there's an upward movement. Hri. Hri. It comes right up to your throat, from the lower part up to the throat. So, with uh, the puja tradition that I learned, when we do the mantras for the different things we visualize in the puja, we add a hri on the end of it. So when you do Om Mani Padme Hum, you do Om Mani Padme Hum Hri. Mm. Om Mani Padme Hum Hri. And that helps to move that energy up and Hri is the seed syllable of Amitabha the Buddha of infinite light so you're bringing Amitabha which is the source of Avokiteshvara uh, you're bringing Amitabha's power into the mantra it makes it more effective the mantra Om Mani Padme Hum touches on the six realms of existence in the on the wheel of life. Let me see if I know the, the gods. The gods. The demigods. That's the color white. Mm. And then the demigods, or the jealous gods, mm. that's the color green, because they're green with envy. Like Yotevafi. Yo <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> he says, I am a jealous god. The warring gods, the right. jealous gods. Well, that the sin of the, the pure gods is pride. Mm. These are the poisons that they have. Right. They These are sentient beings also, right? Not, not Avalokiteshvara, not Ishvara God. Not like capital G no. God. These are the, the long-lived gods. Right. They enjoy a realm of ideal pleasure. Basically what they're doing is they're, they're spending all the money they have in the good karma bank. Mm. Enjoying a life of peace, self-indulgence, and pleasure. And they live a long time. And while they're there, there's a bodhisattva playing the, the song of impermanence on the flute mm. of wisdom to try to remind them that this ain't going to last forever, folks. You know? <laughs> but while they're there, yeah. they're in heaven. And it seems like it's lasting forever, but it's not. Mm. Once the good karma is spent, then they go back to the bardo and they reincarnate in wherever their karma takes them next. Mm. So the color for the gods is white because they are somewhat purified. Mm. But they're still ego because they're self-indulging in ideal pleasure. So the maximum amount of pleasure is what 
is had in that realm. Mm -hmm. So we can experience all, as human beings, we can experience all six of these realms. The human incarnation is considered so precious and valuable because for human beings, the six realms are different psychological states. And we can experience all of them for non-human beings that are incarnated in the non-human realms on this wheel, they only experience one of the realms. That is, the experience of the realm that they're born in. So their perspective on reality is much more restricted. Mm. Whereas, as a human being, you can compare these different psychological states. So symbolically, these things represent psychological states that we experience. So the realm of ideal pleasure, paradise, wish fulfillment, is represented by the color white and the gods, the good karma spenders. The next realm, the color is green. These are the jealous gods, the warring gods. The psychological state is the desire for power and control and domination and being competitive. So that's a state in which you're always at war, basically. You, you never rest. You're always fighting with somebody. Yeah. Unending conflict because you want to dominate, and they want to dominate, and you're competitors. Hmm. And of course, that's a familiar psychological state to anybody. Right, and the origin of morality and civilization, according to the Greeks. <laughs> and the, the, third, the third realm is the human realm. The color is yellow. And this is the realm of human attachments and desires. We keep coming back here to live out our desires. But it also is the most advantageous realm because we have access to all the realms and we can see a bigger picture, you know, of reality. And it's the realm in which you have the best chance of getting off of the wheel, of getting liberation. Hmm. So the you know the teaching Buddha manifests in this realm. I forget what it is that manifests to the warring gods to try to give my hand. But there's something that, there's something of the Bodhisattva nature that manifests in all these realms. Yeah. Now underneath the human realm, the color is blue. And this is the lower half of the wheel of life. And this is called the animal realm. And it's basically the realm of stupidity and ignorance and of being dominated by instinctual drives mm. and desires. You know, we all have our animal nature, our animal soul as human beings. Then, opposite of that is the realm, it's called the hungry ghost realm. The color is red and the beings that are incarnated as hungry ghosts are tortured by insatiable desires for thirst and food and sex and appetites that they can't control and they can never get enough. And these these would be some of like your lower astral 
entities, earthbound souls that will attach themselves to human souls as parasites to try to vicariously inspire you to want to pig out or get drunk or do drugs or screw around or whatever, gamble, whatever that thing is, or to be violent or so they can vicariously share in your experience yeah. while they are vampires sucking off of your life force energy. So that's a realm of major suffering and misery. And in the Tibetan tradition, they do certain sacrifices to offer food and drink to these things to appease their suffering. But it's, it's the basic thing of being driven by your appetites and unfulfilled desires. Yeah. Then the final realm, or there's more than one of them actually, but the color is black, the opposite of white. You know, it's the opposite of the gods that are in heavenly paradise. This is the hell realms, the primary suffering, where you're born into a body that can only experience pain and suffering. So it's a realm of torment on every single level, suffering, misery, and hell. They have a hot hell and a cold hell, and basically, that's all you experience in that realm. And they have all kinds of gruesome descriptions of you know, demons. Are, being torn to pieces. You're being dismembered by demons, and then, but you can't die, and you know you're being tortured. And so it's basically the hell experience. That's the wheel of life. The six syllables: Om, Mani, Padme, Mani. Padme Hung purifies each of those six realms within you when you do the mantra. Yeah. And then you do the Hri to bring in the Amitabha energy, which yeah. is off of the wheel. Yeah. So basically, the Jinrazig slash Avokateshvara, his mantra is for purifying all these realms of impermanence and suffering. Yeah. And the gods start to suffer when they start to realize that they're going to lose their paradise. Then they start tripping around, uh-oh, what's going to happen next? Am I going to be born into a hell realm or into a hungry ghost realm? Or, oh, I, I don't want to leave here, you know. Mm. It's so nice. But, yeah. but you got it. Yeah. It's all impermanent. So attachment, again, is the uh, thing yeah. that causes oh, the suffering. Yeah, it keeps you bound. Yeah. Either want to get away from or stay in. It doesn't matter. I really loved in the Lotus Born Padmasambhava's description of what you just described, but the way that he put it was that Avalokiteshvara has compassion upon the six types of sentient beings, and when one person, one any one person says once, Om Mani Padme Hung, uh, in, in the whole book it's Hung, but Hum, of course, is the origin. Um, then all of these six states are emptied and they cease to be and all becomes infinite light or even I'm using the word infinite light but he, he, he it all becomes bliss and um, yeah, it's just such a power. it's um, because in order to really it's like if I say if someone says to me imagine the sky disappearing I can go okay but like I'm not really a ma- I'm not experiencing the sky disappearing unless it actually disappears, and so so that description I, f- I felt very powerfully um, expresses what you had said that 
you you release those six psychological states, or you you free those when six psychological do, states within yourself. When you recite the mantra, you visualize each of those colors, mm. knowing that it represents each of those realms and what's in the realms. Yeah. But just visualizing the color, going from white to green to yellow to blue to red to black. Om, Mani, Padme, Hum. Yeah. Six-syllable mantra. And then the Ri, hmm. brings it's it like up. icing on the cake because it brings nice. it up. So you're, you're working to purify the realms in yourself, but you're also doing it for all sentient beings. Yeah. Now, wherever Avalokiteshvara is, Tara is. Because they're one. Just like Yeshi Sola and Padmasamhava are one. White Tar was born out of the tear of Kadeshvara. So wherever mm. you can use the Omani Padme Hungri mantra the same way you use Om Tar Tatar Tari Svaha. My one of my Zen yoga well, it was a Zen Zen master who teaches yoga, he has Avalokiteshvara, he has canon, which is Avalokiteshvara, um Kwan Yin. Um, but he, he had then he has Shiva there. And I was so I was like, yes, Shiva and Canon. And so he explained to us that they're both Avalokiteshvara. Avalokiteshvara oh. is, is a mighty, mighty being. Yeah. Of the supernal triad. And I had I had an experience once where Yeshi was comforting me because it was when I was taking care of my dad. And he was in the hospital and he was was shortly before he passed away. You know, he had dementia. He didn't know why they tied him up because he kept pulling catheters out of his penis and uh, hitting the nurses and pulling IVs out of his arms. Mm. He didn't know why he was in there because he had dementia. And the only thing they could do was tie him down. He had a bladder infection. And I'd gone to see him and I could see his suffering. It just tore my heart apart. And he looked at me with this smile and this love you know, just, I could feel his love, and, and then he says, can you get me out of here? And I couldn't, you know, because he mm-hmm. had to be treated for the infection, but he didn't understand yeah. what was happening, and I came home, and I was in the other room there, in the dark, you know, with a candle that doing centering prayer, and I went into this very deep, silent, dark place, and the meditation and then Yeshi was there, and she contacted me, and she brought me into a into a room and had me sit down. <clears throat> and she sat down next to me, a form of Yeshi, you know, one of the emanations. Mm-hmm. And there was somebody else that was in the room too. I don't know who it was. Kind of off to the side. And there was like this stage there, and. Chen Rei Zig came out on the stage as a Buddha, and he was he was very large size, and it was like his his I could see his chakras. He had like a transparent body. His chakras were like immense, and I could just feel all this power radiating from him. And he said he looked at me and. He just said that his daughter was had brought me there and that she was guiding me. <clears throat> I don't remember what he said, but he transmitted something to me, you know, telepathically. But the energy that I experienced took me into a altered 
higher state of consciousness that was indescribable. And I felt that for the next two days. And then, and like my audience with him was very brief. It was just a few seconds. But quite a bit transpired during it, which was all on a nonverbal level. And I, I can't articulate it. And then she brought me back to where I was. And I felt very comforted by this. So it was just sort of helping me keep it together, you know, going through this thing with my dad, mm. you know, in his dying process. Yeah. But it was just part of her love and mercy and compassion to me that, you know, that she did that. Yeah. She was able to sort of introduce me. <laughs> this is a very incredible being. Mm. And all money, pay me home, or that's how the Tibetans say it, or Padme Hung is the more correct Sanskrit way, mm. is his mantra. And he's considered the guardian of Tibet, and the Dalai Lama is considered his physical embodiment mm. in this world. Funny thing about the Dalai Lama, I wanted to mention earlier when we were talking about him and his teaching, someone I know who has a psychic ability to you know, see auras on people, she went and saw the Dalai Lama, I think one time when he was at UCLA or someplace like that. I wasn't there. But she said that when she saw him, she noticed when he came out on the stage and he was the Dalai Lama, his aura looked, you know, a certain way. And it was very bright. But then as soon as he started teaching, that aura expanded to a much larger size and it was enhanced many, many times. And it was like at that point that the deity, or Chandra Zig, was functioning through him. Mm. And then when he stopped teaching, his aura went back. I mean, she said he had an awesome aura, you know. As his auras go, <laughs> as, you know, Tenzin Gatso, you know, as the human Dalai Lama. But during the time when he was teaching and doing whatever he did, he was generous, eh? mm. and she could definitely see and feel the difference in his aura and the energy that was going out to the audience. Wow. So. Well, do you want to do any chanting before we <clears throat> have to wrap up? Or? Oh, my God. Was there more you wanted to go over before that? Well, yeah, I was going to introduce <laughs> you to the Red Tara. Yeah, yeah, let's let's do it. If you want to do the Red sure, Tara. Sure, And this is a Red Tara, you know, sadhana. Oh, cool. The red Tara is the embodiment of pristine awareness. And she's directly connected to uh, Amitabha because she's red. And it was Padmasambhava who discovered the, the Tara Mandala. The tradition of Tara had existed in India, you know, prior to him. But he discovered psychically a particular opening to it. Uh. And the Red Tara practice uh, is a practice that is fairly brief, and it's easy, and it's a, it's an open door, you know, to it's an open door to pure awareness. So that's what they call it. And it starts out it starts out with an invocation of Padmasambhava. Mm -hmm. And the Vajra Guru Mantra. Well, you could read this. 
I want to show you something. You see wherever, see it starts out with a hung. You see those two little things with a line between them? Mm -hmm. Wherever you see that in a text, it means it's a terma. Oh. It's one of the texts that was hidden by Yeshi Sogol and discovered by a Turton later on. Hmm. So this red Tara text was discovered by a Turton, and I don't know exactly when, but it was fairly recently. Hmm. And then this this Turton shared the practice with Chagdu Tulku, who's the one that, he didn't speak any English, but he's the one that designed this. This is a picture of Padmasamava. And then this is a picture of Red Tara. Somewhere she's in here. She's in here too, but uh, well anyway, you could just read this. Well I'm I'm going to the restroom. You, okay. you might want to pause the recording for a minute. If you want to, or you could just read the thing out loud. It says Hung on the northwest border of the country of Orgyan, in the pollen heart of a lotus, you attained marvelous, most excellent CD. Renowned as the Lotus Born, you are surrounded by a circle of many sky dancers. As I practice, following in your footsteps, I pray you approach to confer your blessings. O Guru Padma, bestow CDs upon me. And then you recite the Vajra Guru Mantra. Om Ahum Vajra Guru Padma Siddhi Hum. Three times. Om Ahum Vajra Guru Siddhi Padma Siddhi Hum. Padma Siddhi Hum. I'll be right back. Okay. In the space in front of me, the mother of all the victorious ones, Arya Tara, actually appears, and to her I pray. Now, as I and countless others are lost in the ocean of samsaric suffering, I seek Buddhahood to gain temporary and ultimate happiness for myself and all living beings. For this reason, I take refuge in Arya Tara, embodiment of pure awareness, inseparable from all perfect qualities of Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, Lama, Yidam, and Dakini. From the depths of my heart I pray, evoking from Tara's forehead, throat, and heart a brilliant surge of rainbow light. As the light rays touch me and all other beings, the poisonous fruits of negative karma Sickness, demonic afflictions, and obstacles evaporate like dew in the morning sun. Merit, wisdom, glory, health, and longevity increase beyond measure. Jezun Fagma Drolma Kied Kien No Gal Kien Kun Sel Sam Don Nur Drub Zod. Illustrious Tara. Please be aware of me. Remove my obstacles and quickly grant my excellent aspirations. Om Tare Tam Soha. So, I'll tell you this practice. You know, what I was thinking of doing was going through it, and you could, you could follow along and read it along with me from that text. Okay. I have most of it. 
memorized. <clears throat> so should we wrap up the recording part and move on to the chanting part, or did you want to talk about this a little bit? Well, I want to tell you about it a little bit. Okay. We'll have to, I'll just have to kind of go through it and tell you, because there's a few you know particulars that you won't get by looking at this text. Right. There's actually a companion, a book that goes with it. So the text is called Red Tara? It's called Red Tara, an open door to bliss and ultimate awareness. And there's an introduction. This is a picture of Red Tara here. Mm. There's an introduction to it. And uh, Is there a way to tell which one this is? Is this White Tara? That's Green Tara. Oh, okay. There, How can you tell? I can tell because she's in the a mudra where she's just ready to get up and go help somebody. Oh, okay. She's not in the full lotus. Padmasambhava is usually in that one also. That, I forget the name of that mudra, but she's just ready to jump up and go help somebody. Oh, cool. Green Tara is very active. Yeah. And then the white Tara is always in the Vajra sauna, you know, in the full lotus. And she's in meditation. Mm. So she's more introverted. This one's more extroverted. Okay. There's also like 21 Taras. There's a very rich tradition of Torah, <laughs> as you can imagine. <clears throat> so, um, <clears throat> we do the seven-line prayer, which invokes the blessing of Guru Rinpoche, Padmasamadva. And then, when you start this, you bring Torah, you visualize red Torah coming to you, and you go like this. And you're pulling her so she's right, right in front of you. And then you're going to be visualizing from her crown chakra energy coming to your, your head chakra, from her throat chakra and her heart chakra. She's going to be, you're in a receptive attitude. Her energy is going to be transmitting to you while you do this practice. And you, so you're doing this visualization while you're doing it. Mm. So uh, there's there's this prayer for her guidance. Uh, the English translation of it is, Illustrious Tara, please be aware of me. Remove my obstacles and quickly grant my excellent aspirations. I'll be chanting that in Tibetan. Mm -hmm to go halfway around the mala, and then we'll do the Red Tara mantra, which is Om Tari Tam Soha. Hmm. It's a shorter one than the other Tara mantra. Hmm. Om Tari Tam Soha. And then, after you finish this, we do this mandala offering. And so, you visualize, You do this is a mudra, universal mudra. You visualize the universe. You repeat this three times. You're, you're, uh, oh, there we go. See, it's a little tricky. It's similar to the Kali mudra. Um, yeah, so you're creating a mandala with your fingers when you do this, see. So your thumbs and your, and your uh, small fingers, and then your your ring finger okay, here we go. is standing upright, and then your 
pointing finger and your middle finger are connected. Okay. Just like that. Yeah. So that's the mandala that you create for this mandala offering. And there's a little mantra you say which when you offer it. And you do that three times. And then we recite we recite what's on the page here. And I may need some help from this at some point. <laughs> some of my memory's doing. And then you go to the next page and you do another one. And all these things that have those little marks, they're part of a terma treasure that was recovered mm. by the person that introduced this. See, it wasn't, this practice wasn't intended to be done until, say, it was discovered in the year 1850, till 1850 or 1903, or I don't know exactly when they found it. And then there's a blessing for world peace that you do three times. This is the Tibetan symbol for Trang. Yeah. And it's for, it's a, it also represents Red Tara. When you do the, the meditation part of this, you visualize this symbol in your heart chakra. You're going to be looking at this. Unless I need help. Right. <laughs> I'll just say, pass it to me mm -hmm. if I need help. And we repeat the Red Tara mantra. And you visualize it going counterclockwise. Is this counterclockwise? Uh, yeah, yeah, from my point of view. Yeah, from your point of view. You visualize this with a feminine practice you go counterclockwise, or feminine deity. If it's a male deity, you go clockwise. Hmm. You visualize the energy, or you can visualize the, the mala going around your heart with her seed syllable, Tom, in it. Hmm. And then there's some concluding prayers that we do. I know this is a lot to give you all at once. <laughs> That's okay. But you'll have it recorded. So, I'll just start going through this practice with a seven-line prayer, and then you can just turn the pages, and you can read them out loud with me if you want to. Okay. Do you want me to record or no record? Doesn't matter. Okay. They'll, they sell this to the general public. Okay. <clears throat> Though they're hesitant about people who haven't been initiated into the practice to do the visualization, right. which I've given you. Mm. Okay, so start out. And you've got a mala right there. Mm -hmm. If you want to, you know, work with a mala too. Doing this. Om Ahum. On the northwest border of the country of origin, in the palm and heart of the lotus. You were born. <laughs> you were born in the north part of origin, the palm of the lotus. The palm of the lotus. You attain marvelous, most excellent city. You're now as lotus born. You're surrounded by a circle of many sky dancers. As I practice following in your footsteps, I pray that you approach to confer your blessings. Oma hung vajagu padma city hung. Oma hung vajagu padma siri hung. Oma hung vajagu padma siri hung. 
That was I and countless others. We're lost on the ocean of samsaric suffering. <laughs> I'm used to doing this mentally and very rapidly. Now as I encounter the the lost ocean of sanctuary suffering, I seek Buddhahood to gain temporary and permanent happiness for myself and all living beings. For this reason, I'm... It's okay, you can keep it. <laughs> for this reason, I take refuge in Aryatar, embodiment of pure awareness, inseparable from all perfect qualities of Buddha, Dharma, Sangha, Lama, Gita, and Dakini. From the depths of my heart, I pray, evoking from Tara's forehead, throat, and heart a brilliant surge of rainbow light. As the light rays touch me and all other sentient beings, the poisonous fruits of negative karma, sickness, demonic afflictions, and obstacles evaporate like dew in the morning sun. Merit, wisdom, glory, wealth, and longevity increase beyond measure. Lustrous Tara, please be aware of me. Remove my obstacles and quickly grant my excellent aspirations. Jetsun Fagma Dramal Chetchen Nodo Chen Kinsosum Domna Dripsod. Jetsun Fagma Dramal Chetchen Nodo Chen Kinsosum Domna Dripsod. Jetsun Fagma Dramal Chetchen Nodo Chen Kinsosum Domna Dripsod. Jetsun Fagma Dramal Chetchen Nodo Chen Kinsosum Domna Dripsod. You repeat that many times. Then you do the Red Torah Mantra many times. Om Tari Tam Soha, Om Tari Tam Soha, all the while visualizing her in front of you, radiating the energy to your three higher centers. Om Tari Tam Soha, 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 Om Tari Tam Soha. I'm just doing a shortened version. Mandala offering. Om Ahum. In the the three thousand fold universe, Mount Meru, the four continents, the minor continents, and the splendor and glory of gods and agas and humans, together with their roots of virtue, are emanated as vast, extensive clouds of perfectly pure offerings. I offer them to Tara, mother of the victorious ones, Trongu Ratnamandala Idamiyami. The 3,000-fold universe, Mount Meru, the four continents, the minor continents, and the splendor and glory of gods, nagas, and humans, together with the roots of virtue, are emanated as vast and extensive clouds of perfectly pure offerings. I offer them to Tara, mother of the victorious ones, Tramga, Guru, Mahatma, Ratna, Mandala, Yami, where the power of having prayed thus from the heart May the enlightened mind be mastered, and appearances perceived purely as the deity's body. May the meaning of the developing and completion stages be naturally internalized. May conditions inauspicious to the perfect path be pacified, and all conceivable auspicious conditions and aspirations be fulfilled. May the stains and obscurations of non-virtue be cleansed, and harm from other beings and bad dreams be averted. Grant the blessing of protection from the fear of lower existences. May rebirth not occur in the eight stages devoid of leisure to practice. May all lifetimes be remembered and faculties be clear. May discipline be pure and the mind attend to dharma. From the ripening of karma 
caused by delusion, grant the blessing that shields, protects, and conceals. May the malignancy of enemies, demons, and ghostly interferences, the harmful effects of untimely death, epidemics, and illnesses caused by poison, all be pacified and purified. And may the wisdom and activities of Tara be revealed. Om, ah, hum. In the pure realm of the victorious ones, the spontaneous presence of the three Kayas is she who gives birth to victorious ones of the three times, a cloud of inexhaustible bliss of the three secrets. I bow to you, O sublime guide of the three realms of existence. From now until I reach enlightenment, I rely on you as my sole source of refuge and protection. In accordance with your former aspirations and commitments, do not waver in your compassion. Fully bestow on me your powers, blessings, and cities. Whoever sees me, hears me, touches me, or remembers me, by these four means of liberation and by the most sublime city, may I be capable of freeing all those connected to me, and may my attainment become equal to yours. Without relying on the power of magnetizing, how could one gain the necessary qualities to care for others? May I influence all those to be tamed, positive and negative, without exception, by inspiring in them the four kinds of devotion. Furthermore, upon mastering positive qualities within a state of liberation, may all beings quickly attain the actual form of the victorious ones, resplendent with the major and minor marks of perfection. Until such time, may we be free from the eight great fears and from malevolent influences. May such favorable qualities as longevity, glory, and excellence flourish. May the yogas of the two stages be mastered, and may we be free from obstacles. In all countries, may disease, war, and famine be pacified. May all beings have bliss, happiness, and engage in the dharma. May the Buddha's teachings be propagated, and may all beings come under the guidance of Tara, mother of the victorious ones. In all countries, may disease, war, and famine be pacified. May all beings have bliss, happiness, and engage in the Dharma. May the Buddha's teachings be propagated, and may all beings come under the guidance of Tara, mother of the victorious ones. In all countries, May disease, war, and famine be pacified. May all beings have bliss, happiness, and engage in the Dharma. May the Buddha's teachings be propagated. And may all beings come under the guidance of Tara, mother of the victorious ones. Transformation into the wisdom body of Tara. Attachment to ordinary appearances and clinging to my corporeal form subside. From the space of emptiness, my mind's natural awareness spontaneously appears as the brilliant red seed syllable Tom. Instantly, Tom transforms into the luminous form of the noble Tara. She is smiling and exceedingly beautiful. Her right hand is in the gesture of supreme generosity and holds a long life vase. Her left hand 
is in the gesture of the three jewels and holds a red upala flower by the stem. Within the petals of the flower are a fully drawn bow and arrow made of delicate flowers. Her garments are made of exquisite silk and draped perfectly in graceful folds. She wears wish-fulfilling jewels and splendid ornaments, as well as a garland of lotus flowers. Half of her hair is in a knot at the crown of her head, half flows down her back. She sits in the posture of royal ease on a sun disk, resting on a red lotus. A full moon appears behind her. The Buddha Amitabha sits on a lotus above her head. She is ruby red. Her glorious rainbow light radiance fills an infinite sphere. On a red lotus and sun disk in her heart, the seed syllable Tom is encircled by the mantra Mala. As the mantra is recited, the mantra Mala begins to revolve. Radiating light from the Mala forms an offering to the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas of the Ten Directions. Returned as wisdom blessings, the light is reabsorbed. Then light radiates again to the beings of the six realms, dissolving all suffering and transforming everything into the pure phenomena of Tara's pure land. So now we will go around the Mala once, reciting the Red Tara mantra and doing this visualization as we do it. Then after that, we will dissolve. I'll, I'll tell you when we get there. We'll go around there once, doing the, the mantra and the visualization. Om Tari Tam Soha, 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 Om Tari Tam Now we're going to sit and resting in emptiness for a few minutes, just doing silent meditation. It says, when you have completed the mantra rep repetition, Tara's form dissolves into the natural sphere of emptiness. And we say the throat chakra seed syllable three times. Ah, ah, ah. Ah, ah, ah. That's the, the dissolving of the visualization. Your mind rests in emptiness, the natural state of awareness, for the duration of the meditation session. Then you reappear spontaneously in the form of Tara. So you're identifying yourself with the deity. Appearances are perceived purely as the body of the deity. 
So everything around you is, is Torah. Sounds are the speech of the deity and thoughts are the mind of the deity. This perception of pure phenomena is held as extensively as possible throughout the day. So this is what you do after you emerge from the emptiness meditation. So we'll just abide in the, the rest of emptiness meditation. I just do centering prayer during this time because it's essentially the same thing. dedication throughout my many lives and until this moment whatever virtue I have accomplished including the merit generated by this practice and all that I will ever attain this I offer for the welfare of sentient beings may sickness, war, famine and suffering be decreased for every being while their wisdom and compassion increase in this and every future life May I clearly perceive all experiences to be as insubstantial as the dream fabric of the night and instantly awaken to perceive the pure wisdom display in the arising very phenomena. May I quickly attain enlightenment in order to work ceaselessly for the liberation of all sentient beings. Prayer of Aspiration Buddhas and Bodhisattvas all together, whatever kind of motivation you have, whatever kind of beneficial action, whatever kind of wishing prayers, whatever kind of omniscience, whatever kind of life accomplishment, whatever kind of benevolent power, and whatever kind of immense wisdom you have, then similarly, I, who have come in the same way to benefit beings, pray to attain these qualities. The auspicious wish. At this very moment, for the peoples and nations of the earth, may not even the names, disease, famine, war, and suffering be heard. Rather, may their moral conduct, merit, wealth, and prosperity increase, and may supreme good fortune and well-being always arise for them. Torah Meditation for the Dead From Tara's heart, rainbow light shines forth throughout the six realms and the bardo, enveloping the deceased ones wherever they are, purifying their karma and infusing them with Tara's radiant blessing. Their forms become brilliant spheres of light and dissolve into Tara's heart-mind a realm beyond the cycles of suffering, a realm of absolute purity and bliss. You can meditate in this way during 49 days after the death 
dedicating the merit of your practice to the deceased. So that's uh, Red Tara. Thank you. There are more things in here, but that's that's basically what I do. I don't do everything that's in there. Mm. Very cool. Thank you so much. Yeah, there's some symbolism in the visualization that uh, I could tell you about. I like the uh, bow and arrow made of delicate flowers that mm. are inside. I noticed this tart is holding a, a flower by its stem. Yeah, she typically does that. doesn't have the bow and arrow. Yeah. No, the bow and arrow is unique to red, red, to red tar. And the bow and arrow represent skillful means and wisdom. Mm. The symbol is skillful means and wisdom. And she kind of, I've had her appear to me at different times when I've been doing this practice in different forms. Like I've seen her with blonde hair. And, mm. But... Uh, Usually, often she's Oriental, but sometimes she looks Caucasian. And she can manifest in any form she chooses to, like in your dreams or in your vision you know, when yeah. you're doing the prayer. So the idea of this practice is just to keep her with you hmm. all the time. And during the day, you can just recite her mantra, Om Tari Tom Soha, and visualize that energy rotating counterclockwise in your heart center as you go through your day. Mm. It's a very simple, easy mantra. It makes me think of sometimes, I mean, not very often, but when I get into a certain state and I'll, I'll find myself crying literally for the suffering of the world. Um, my mom, when she was working with the Golden Dawn system in the practicus grade, was working with the Isis God form. And mm. she was driving on the freeway in Isis God form. And for the first time, because she always was, you know, would succumb to road rage and be like, ah, oh, screw that guy, and I hate that guy, and good thing I don't have a gun, you know. But in Isis God form, she found herself realizing that there was an, an immortal soul in each, oh, in each car and in each yeah. person. And she had this overwhelming feeling of love for everyone on the freeway, and she started to cry. Yes, yeah, so she was experiencing the consciousness of the deity. yeah. It makes me think of Tara being the tears of Avalokiteshvara, who, who weeps for the suffering of all sentient beings. It is. It's the same. It's the same thing. Uh, There's all the female goddesses are connected, in all the different traditions. But there's a there's a very interesting book. It's called Longing for Darkness. It's written by a woman named China Gavan, and she was doing this red Tara practice. But she also discovered a connection between Tara and the Black Madonna oh. that the Christians worship. Interesting. Yeah, she went to this place in Nepal where Tara images were growing out of the rocks, mm. where people had done this practice a lot. And then she went, she went to a place in Poland where the Black Madonna was growing out of the bark of trees mm. when people dedicating their prayers to her. Yeah. Thank you so much for all of this. Thank you, Kes Fry, 
for being our guest once again on this What Would Yeshi Do episode of the Esoteric Nerd Podcast. If you or someone you know has a relationship with Yeshidawa, Yeshitsogyal, or Tibetan Buddhism in general, if you have anything to add or to challenge from these past two What Would Yeshi Do episodes, please contact me so that we can schedule your episode of What Would Yeshi Do. Special thanks to Susumu Ueda and his father and the other monks at Jofukuin on Mount Koyasan for the music you're hearing right now. Special thanks to Jean-Michel Jarre for the album Equinox, which played in the background during the Secret of the Golden Flower segment. And special thanks to you, the Esoteric nerd listening to this podcast. Bye for now. <laughs>